Hi, I'm Billy Boyd. And I'm Dominic Monaghan. I'm Elijah Wood. I'm Sean Astin. Hello, my name's Andy Serkis. And this is Gollum. And this is Smithel. And welcome to the cast commentary for The Return of the King. That's the third movie in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Kind of an interesting thing to let people know is that the first time that we see the extended cut is now. Now. <laughs> to this moment. You're watching with us. Well, I'm looking forward to doing a little stream of consciousness sharing with the hundreds of millions of Lord of the Rings fans who go out and get these DVDs. So let's, you want to dig in? Let's do it. This is the opening shot to Return of the King, and as you can see, involves a worm. The most difficult thing about this shot was getting the worm on the hook, because as you can see, when it comes into shot, it's an enormous hook and a very small worm, but no worms were killed or maimed during the making of that shot. Now then, Thomas Robbins, who played Deagle, and myself, who played Smeagol, uh, shot this scene in Fernside, north of Wellington. What this scene was really trying to achieve was a sense of taking you back to the Shire, taking you back to a golden time before the ring ruins all of these people's lives. Smeagol! Smeagol here is, is enjoying Deagle's inability to fish. He quite likes seeing other people having a bad time and things, but he's not malicious. It was very important for me to establish him as, as a hobbit, as someone who was capable of being normal before this tragedy happens to him. Smeagol really enjoyed seeing his cousin fall into the water. <laughs> yes, the die was coming soon, precious, wasn't I? Yes, 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 you won't be hurt yet. Tell you what, that's a strong fish to pull that hobbit under the water and drag him for a bit. Yeah. He's just had a big bite of a donut, hasn't he? What's that, though? I don't know. What is that? That is keys. Do you lose his keys? And I think this scene was filmed, was it not, Dom? Hmm. To be in the two towers. I agree with you there, Billy. The sequence was originally meant to be in the two towers in the Dead Marshes when Frodo says, you used to be a hobbit once, you used to be called Smeagol, and, and then he remembers his name for the first time. But Peter and Fran thought very cleverly, hold back from delivering the origins of the character, allow the audience to live with that character and the mystery of the character over a year before the release of the next film, and, and keep it like a psychological thriller. Placing it at the beginning of the third film, it, it really does take you back to life before the ring, and so for the arc of the third film, it works terrifically well. <laughs> this was the most difficult part of the scene, is knowing exactly how to play, and we played it in a whole spectrum of ways, knowing exactly how to play the moment of seeing the ring and becoming addicted to it immediately. As Tolkien writes, the ring affects you according to your moral stature, so we had to make that very apparent, but at the same time, not melodramatic, and it had to be real. So the whole idea of the two characters, it could have gone either way. The whole idea that, you know, it was affecting Deagle as well, it gives power to the ring and actually makes it less one-sided. It could happen to any of us. It's good we get to see Andy Serkis, isn't it? Yeah, because I think, like most of the audience know, he did do so much work to play Gollum, but was obviously not seen in his fine male form. And now we do see him. Now we see him. I remember sitting and watching the movie for the first time and sitting between my wife and Andy Serkis. And when this came on, he was just beaming. And I just felt like this man who at that point had existed for years with these movies, as the movies became successful, people still didn't understand, still didn't realize how much time and energy he put into creating the character of Gollum. One thing about Andy as well, he's, he's one of these actors that goes for it 100%. So I wouldn't really like to be Deagle. Yeah, he probably is trying to kill this guy. Yeah, he probably did kill him, actually. Yeah. Thomas's neck was red raw by the end of shooting. He really had to put up with quite a lot. 
Oh, this is an extra bit here. This is more choking to show that he really did choke him. Yeah, that he's really being choked. I think this is the purest example of what the ring can do, because you see him as this innocent hobbit. You see what it does to him upon seeing it, and ultimately how it physically changes him as well. Fran Walsh, who was directing this sequence, got very ill, and I, I got a call from Pete about 6 o'clock in the morning, and he asked me if I'd direct some of the sequence. So I, I talked to uh, Thomas about it, and we worked out this relationship between us. And then I'd run with the shots once we'd come up with some stuff and we'd run across with a clamshell, which is a little video TV monitor, and I'd take that and show Pete and then come back and we'd shoot some more. Precious. We played this shot in a myriad of different ways to try and really nail the truest response to that moment of ecstasy. And then, of course, it's like the fall from grace. This series of vignettes, we wanted to create an image of the descent into madness the obsession, the addiction growing, and that shot of being hunched over by the tree. It's almost like he's suffering from heroin addiction. This He's really becoming absorbed by the drug. Saying the name for the first time, finding that convulsion, finding that inability to, to stop this way of talking coming out of his mouth. You know, he's called Gollum because of the way he sounds, so this really shows that. It's good this part for Andy, because he was able to use his real teeth and his real nails for this. He does actually have grotesque teeth. Most Englishmen do. Scotsmen, on the other hand, have textbook teeth. Yeah, we use them for biting haggis mm. and also for helping to chew the ends off our kilt. That moment where he's glaring round was it's him becoming more paranoid of people watching him. And this is the last that he ever sees of sunlight, the last time he looks up and, and sees the yellow face, the sunshine, before he disappears into the Misty Mountains. This looks like kind of a full-body prosthetic. Yeah. Which would be a nightmare, a lot of work. The prosthetics for this particular shot, we started off at 3.30 in the morning, I think I was on set. Just there, you'll see the final moment of prosthetic makeup before it becomes digital Gollum. It's amazing how, how much Gollum ended up looking like Andy. Hence the, the complete redesign of the face, because of course we shot a lot of that in principal photography, and Gollum hadn't been fully facially designed at that point. So it was going backwards and sort of saying, well, that's how Andy's face looks. Let's build Gollum's face to fit that. So all the facial structure from then on was redesigned. So that's why you'll see a qualitative difference from Fellowship into Two Towers. I think that first shot, wasn't it snowing that day? It was, yeah. It was like so bone-chillingly cold that day. You can't even tell. It was frighteningly cold that day. Now we see Frodo with the ring, you see, and we think, well, he could end up like that. Yeah. You know, eating raw fish. Getting all skinny. It's probably why he keeps Gollum alive and feels sorry for him so much, is that he sees so much of himself potentially in Gollum. Yes, yes, and here we are. This culvert, that bit there is still on location. Is it? Yeah. Because you look not, younger. It's not until they turn it around where you can't actually see the background and you only see the culvert. That's I just not know location. that throughout the years, mm. in different places in New Zealand, we'd arrive at sets and you'd see the cement structure of the culvert sort of parked out in the parking lot. And you kind of knew, like, it was the cover set. It was just like, waiting. when something goes wrong, we're, yeah, and you sort of think, God, we're going to have to go back <laughs> into the culvert, back to the culvert. Oh, man. I never really understood that whole earthquake thing until I saw it in the, <laughs> the context of the film. <laughs> when we were doing it on the day, I'm like, it's, 
The earth is shaking. This is like a Star Trek moment. What's happening? I felt a little better about it when they were when they were physically shaking the camera. When you could see them yeah. sort of wiggling the camera, then you sort of felt like I'm not gonna look like too big of an idiot. No. <laughs> but honestly, I didn't fully understand it, which is weird, but I didn't fully understand it until I saw the film. I'm just happy that it's been long enough from the first movie that when we talk about Lembus bread that it's not as horrifying to you and me as... Because no. that one scene at the beginning oh, wow. of The Two Towers. Lembus Lembus bread. bread. Oh, lordy, Lou. <laughs> All right. I actually really enjoyed the Lembus bread. I don't know if... The taste of it. Yeah. There was something kind of sweet about it. Mm. Sort of shortbready without being shortbread. I remember having to do food acting you know you eat and then you, you sort of talk and like do you do you swallow or i think there is a moment in the film where i have a bit in my mouth and i'm kind of talking through the journey it was actually in the culvert it was when we did the the pickups some three years later i'm supposed to be eating and talking with food in my mouth i think there's a couple of takes where I way too much i got a little bit of a talking to from fran less food <laughs> Better acting, less food. <laughs> okay, Fran. Now, where are they here, Bill? What do you think? South Island? Well, let's have a look. I can't make this out. Hagnatale. I believe it was in Whiteray Forest, north of Mackerel, just north of Wellington. Here come the heroes. That's a studio. Yeah, this is a studio. What a fantastic studio. Thank you. Well, this is the Fanghorn Forest. Never existed in reality. There was a few trees dotted around a set outside the main studios in Wellington. Who's that? Oh, he's very beautiful. He's beautiful, but darker. Yeah. He's more scary beautiful, more I'll hit you in the face beautiful. Yeah. It's amazing how they piece this together. Little bursts of 15-second riding all pieced together to make it look like we're going through a big forest. The Return of the King, originally called The Return of Mary. That's us, that. Yeah, we're laughing, eh? Yeah, we're laughing. This was a good fun scene to do, wasn't it? Yeah, we filmed it in a couple of different ways, didn't we? One was drunk, and one was a little bit stoned, a little bit affected by the pipe weed. Yeah. And then one which was kind of neither. Yeah. What do you think Pete went for? Drunkish? Kind of drunkish, I think. Yeah. What was amazing during the whole filming process was that, mainly because Billy and Dom, who you see in here, playing Merry and Pippin, because they were thrown together in, as English actors, they formed this incredible bond. And I think it shows in their work. And I think the writing, as it went on, reflected their friendship and their ability to stay completely in sync with each other. Showing, once again, hobbits, regardless of what's gone on before or what will happen after, if they have a beer in the hand, some pipe weed and some food, they just have fun, enjoy it. There was some question at this moment, how many hobbits had I seen? Was I aware of the fact that there were hobbits in existence in Middle-earth? And I think we came to the conclusion that I probably did have some kind of knowledge of them, but probably not much experience. You never actually see my reaction to it, but at the time we shot some stuff of uh, my reaction to the hobbits, which was one of kind of bemused detachment, I suppose. From Treebeard, who's taken over management of Isengard. This was filmed out in uh, Lower Hutt, I believe. Quite a unique set, actually. It was a tank, which was only about a foot high. Like a huge swimming pool. You know, like a big swimming pool in the backyard. It was incredibly manky by the end of it. I'm glad we were on horseback. A lot of time I had to be on my knees in this swimming pool with all these horses and stuff in it. And they were all shitting into this pool. I wasn't thinking about this, Dom. Oh. I had to plunge myself into it. It wasn't nice. 
I didn't see Isengard or have a sense of its scale until I saw the completed film. So when I was shouting up to Christopher, he was in another car park standing on a platform and we could hear each other shouting against the New Zealand wind. I had no idea that he was meant to be, I don't know, what, half a mile up? But what do the actors know? One of the saddest things about um, the edit for the film, the theatrical version, was that Christopher lost his place in the film. And it would have been rather churlish of me to, to put my side forward because this is actually my best scene in the whole trilogy or in the two films that I'm in in the trilogy. So that was a bit of a loss anyway. I think it's a loss for, for, for Saruman's character and for Theoden's character. Christopher's said several times, one of the reasons why he, he adores this scene is it's pure Tolkien. It's one of the purest scenes. We shall have peace. It's a very complex character, superbly written by Tolkien. And he never explains, as far as I can recall, what makes Saruman change. He, he goes through all the emotions, you might say, that are already there in Tolkien's character. The feeling of power, the actual power, the hypnotic effect of his being and his voice and what he says plus the hatred and anger and fury when something doesn't quite go the way he wants it to. So you have come here for information? Oh, you want information, do you? I can give you some. You're all going to die. That, of course, is vicious and sarcastic, black humor. Something that you have failed to see. He's got the bowling ball. I won the West County Championship Crown Green Bowling. Even now, he can still exert this kind of power which makes them uneasy. So part of it is gentle and quiet, part of it is savage and harsh, part of it is almost snarling, part of it is total sarcasm, contempt, and part of it is I know things you don't know. Things you have failed to see. This exile crept. Great character, because he's, you know, he's trying to get inside our heads, trying to play with our minds, make us all be suspicious of each other and, and doubt each other. But we can't, we love each other, we're a fellowship. Mm, exactly. You know? I'll never doubt you, Bill. No. Tell me, what words of comfort did you give the halfling? I think I'm right in saying there was a blue sky, but it was windy, but they also had a wind machine. Well, of course, that looked wonderful in terms of blowing my robes around. It doesn't look so fabulous when my beard covers my face. And it gave rise to a great deal of unnecessary laughter, in my opinion, starting with the director, who thought it was hilariously funny that I was trying to say these superb Tolkien lines through a mass of hair which covered the whole of my face, the wig on the top and the beard over here. But we managed to get around it by doing something indoors but they do use some of the exterior shots were shot in the parking lot oh brad duroff i missed brad in this film as yeah. well i love brad duroff the only time you see grima is when he's in this deteriorated state i suppose like you find theoden at the beginning in his state but then theoden gets a resurrection and grima doesn't you were once a man of rohan see there you are he was once a man of rohan there's an awful lot revealed here, a lot of the story that you don't actually see in the movie, but you suspect, and it's hinted at, like the poison of Theodred and Wormtongue's part in the whole thing. And at the end, you see Theoden 
show a great level of kingship, if you like, magnanimity and forgiving Rima, because he realizes that, and it's something that I've said quite a lot in the analysis of, of the two films I'm involved in, there is a sense that Grima is as much a victim as anybody of the whole evil process that is embodied via Sauron into Saruman. I remember Brad Dourif saying, you made me do it. He actually said that when we shot it. All these things, in other words, that you see pouring poison into King Theoden's ear is all my idea, and he's done it. I made him do it. I got really good with a bow and arrow, funnily enough. I mean, obviously, most of it was done without. They added the arrows in later, but I think that shot I did actually do with an arrow. And they put up a cross, and I was hitting the cross, and the guy who was training me had all these big plastic things that I was shooting at, bears and deers, and as if I was going hunting. It was great. Good stuff, that, Bill. Oh, yeah. Now, there was a lot of controversy in New Zealand over this shot of Saruman kind of stuck between the spokes of a... What, what is it, big wheel? Because the New Zealand press got hold of it somehow and everybody thought that it was Gandalf and everybody thought that Gandalf was killed in the movie and it obviously it's not how it works in the book. Pete was quite annoyed about that, wasn't he? Yeah. That it got out. Someone had taken a photo on the set. Well, there was people everywhere with them. Um, long lenses and stuff as well, wasn't there? And then cameras were banned. Yeah. Well, that's how the Palantir gets down there. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> The great truth, of course, of Treebeard's line, you know, trees will grow again. This is what all of us who are environmentally conscious forget about nature, that by and large, anything that we do, nature will put things right given time. The earth will continue for a lot longer than men will. This is me wading through horse. Say poo. Poo. Yeah, good. Because there's kids watching yeah. and listening. In fact, I remember one time I went down to get the Palantir and actually picked up a horse's poo. Yeah. And because I was so in the moment, I actually handed a poo to Ian McKellen here. And he wrapped it up in his shawl. And then struck me violently about the face, head and neck. Look at that face, you go, oh, you know what? Well, I'll, well, I'll have that again, I will. See, I'm taken by it, though. I'm taken by it. Yeah, I'm not, though, interestingly no. enough. I'm not, I'm but not bothered. You haven't touched it, that's the thing. Mm. You know, once you've seen it, you think, oof, I'll have another look at that. So we finally get to use this shot that was used so much in the trailers, I think, for the second movie, but I don't think it was actually ever in the second movie. It was originally a shot about me watching them ride away to battle later on in the third film. But in the end, I ended up leaving with them, so um, I couldn't watch them right away. That's a little confusing, but um, I was confused too. The geography's very got very confusing when we're shooting the third movie. So I was disappointed with that windy shot of Miranda that her dress didn't fly right up and you saw her knickers and stuff. Well, she didn't wear any, Tom. Uh -huh. That's why they couldn't show her. Hail the victorious dead. Hail! Vigo just pauses there because he thinks, I've not had a drink since Easter Sunday. I don't know if I should break this. And this was the scene that Peter put in uh, after the Battle of Helm's Deep to commemorate the loss of life, which then abruptly devolves into a... Uh, Massive piss up. <laughs> it's a drinking. Pete just said, we want to just lighten up the mood a bit, so we're going to have the hobbits dancing on the table, singing their song. We want Legolas and Gimli to have this drinking game. He's having a good smell of it. Yeah. Elves have a very strong sense of smell. Mm-hmm. In fact, it was actually uh, Legolas who told me that it was actually a horse poo and not the Palantir. Oh, really? Mm. 
We like the idea of um, using Eowyn with the chalice or, or the cup because that's sort of an image that Alan Lee used in one of his drawings where she presents the cup to Aragorn. And then we thought we'd use it also giving it to Theoden as, as he is king. She likes him. He likes her. He likes someone else. That person likes him. He's got the best of both worlds. Yeah. That's a great position to be in as a man. Two girls like you and you think, who do I like more? Do I go blackhead? Do I go strawberry bun? But no knickers. Oh, that's a good point. See, she's one with that, but Liv Tyler has nice, nice lips and beautiful skin. When we were writing in the, the development, the stages of, of Theoden, one of the things that I was quite insistent upon was it shouldn't be a consistent development, that you should actually have little falls. And, and one of them is here, where you see kind of the self-doubt creep back in just ever so slightly, in confidence with his niece, obviously, but this idea that he didn't do it all on his own. <laughs> He's cheating, actually, because it's all going in his beard, you know that? That's what dwarves do. This was um, Aemon's attempt <laughs> to get Legolas hammered. It's really supposed to, part of it's supposed to trigger back to the um, initial animosity felt between Legolas and Aemon, which he saw in the two towers. When uh, Legolas pulls a bow on Aemon, by the end of Helm's Deep, really, they're, they're good buddies, in the book anyway. I think what they probably gave me to drink was something like one of those alcohol-free beers. Or it may have been something like uh, apple juice and Coke or something like that. Something fairly disgusting, you know, you get the old froth going. Yeah, it's a complete role reversal because a couple of drinks, Orlando's, anyone's. <laughs> totally. I'm a, such a lightweight. Here this, we go, though. This was reshoots. Oh. Yeah. Hey! There was no one there, just me and Dom. Yeah. We choreographed that little dance as well. Me and Dom did. Choreographer, stroke dancer. It's on my CV. Wasn't sure if that reaction shot was in the full length. It wasn't. You I'll are sure. That, I'll tell you that for sure. Because I like that. I think it builds up his guilt of not only did he pick up the Palantir, which he knows that he shouldn't have done, but it's also kind of grown in his mind that he really, really wants to have another look at it. Mm. And also that Gandalf has a kind of inkling that he knows he's going to do it as well. Nothing. When it comes to Gandalf in the third film, Peter said that he and Fran and Philippa definitely wanted to, to, to flesh out uh, Gandalf's emotional journey, which they thought was going to be a, um, an important strand in keeping the audience's attention and enthusiasm going right through to the bitter end. That Frodo is alive. So although Gandalf doesn't have much to do with... Uh, Frodo, and that they don't share scenes, really. Uh, he's constantly thinking about him. This shot that you're seeing now was shot on a set, but from here on in, in the close-ups, was all done in the motion capture studio. It was at this point that we realised that we could either stay with what we'd created in, in Two Towers, i.e. the two characterisations, Smeagol being the innocent character and Gollum being the revengeful one, or, or we could actually take the audience on a slightly more uncomfortable, difficult and challenging journey by making Smeagol, at the end of the day, the more dark of the two. He is childish, but then he's manipulative, and as anyone knows who's got children, they can be manipulative. But this really is where you get to see Smeagol becoming slightly more self-obsessed, 
slightly more wanting his own thing at the expense of Gollum. Gollum is just reacting viscerally. It's a gut reaction. He's hot-blooded. He's angry. But Smeagol, he's cold-blooded and calculating. The flashback was Gollum trying to gain control, reminding Smeagol, making him feel guilty for the fact that he did kill Deagle for the ring and that he can do it again. He's got to gather himself together and stick to the plan. First, we must lead them to her. This whole sequence was shot as a one-take scene again, as we did with Two Towers. It's a wonderful scene. I think that that, that scene in the, in the Two Towers that is such a, a favorite of fans from what I've... Schizophrenia scene. That schizophrenia scene. And now to have another one, yet so different... And just the confidence. I actually think I prefer this particular one because he actually has a reflection of himself to look at. I didn't ever want it to feel like there were two characters. It was all coming out of one head. It was just different parts of his personality rearing up at different times as he's arguing it out with himself. So I played, I played the entire sequence through as one. I remember we we're, were laying over there on the side when they were shooting some of these things. Sleeping, sometimes. Sleeping, yeah, and actually literally falling literally asleep on falling the cold asleep. studio floor. Yep. So Gollum becomes the kind of the orchestrator, the one who's holding Smeagol together, and, and it's like Smeagol becomes the doer through using his own manipulative wiles. He forgets himself. Smeagol forgets himself, forgets his naive personality for a minute and, and reveals to Gollum how selfish he is. I always think of him as someone who... Uh, who you work with, who you think's got particularly nasty habits, who's, you know, you don't really like, he's a bit creepy in the office, and then they'll do something one day that perhaps he breaks your heart, and and then you'll think, oh, how have I misunderstood this person? And then they'll do something the next day that you just want to, you want to kill him, you know? So that's, that's really how I began to think of Gollum, as someone that... I mean, you laugh with him, you, you, you despise him you, all the time, and I think this is why I've, I keep talking about the writing, really. I think Fran Walsh, who really wrote most of the Gollum scenes on her own, I just think she just did an incredible job on uh, on shaping that. I really enjoy this, eh? <laughs> Great. Over the top. <laughs> That's him overacting again. No, I wasn't. Yes, you were, precious. I, I remember how badly overacting you were that day. Shut up! We can't do this by ourselves, Sam. No, this, no. Was a, this was a pick-up scene, wasn't it? I need you on my side. I need you on my side. That was added, which I really enjoyed. I think to maintain that connection, especially since it's going to be broken later, I think is really important. Trust me. Come, Smeagol. And just coming up, you'll see, really, for the first time, Gollum showing to Sam that he means business with that look and that Sam can't do anything about it. Scene. Just sleeping it off, Gimli. I've been asked to talk about dwarvish farts. Of course, it is not true that dwarves ever fart. Elves, on the other hand, it's a little-known fact that <clears throat> they snore and fart all the time. That's disgusting. Oh, this is uh, a new scene. Vigo and Miranda. Where's Miranda? She's asleep. Is oh. she? Yeah. Ah. I'm really glad this scene's back in the extended DVD. I knew that it would go from the movie because it's not it's not imperative to the narrative of the film. Showing the tenderness. 
keep the fire warm. Yeah, you're just going to just pull over her toes because if you leave your extremities out for any more than 35 minutes, you'll, you'll have a nightmare. What time is it? The dream that she speaks about is actually in the book, it's Faramir's, but it, it's such a, an interesting dream, I think, that she has, and it's sort of the sense of foreboding of what's about to happen. I dreamed I saw a great wave. I guess I, I like it because it's, it's not just about her being in love with him, it, it's about them both being at this point of not knowing whether they will live or die or, or what will happen to everybody around them. And yeah, it's just a, a sense of fear of how you're going to be in the future, how, how you're going to react. Are you going to be able to act or, or will you be paralysed, which is sort of her fear. That's a lovely scene. That was a nice scene to shoot too. Originally, I think they were going to put me in a chair and Nyla went, no, 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 no. She can't sleep in a chair. She has to have a proper chaise lounge or something to, to sit on so that we can drape the robes properly to make it that kind of image. But there's something so nice and quiet, something quiet and personal between them. He's just scoping around, seeing if there's anything to do tonight. Any bars open? I bet he's thinking, look, if I was in Hidalgo, I'd race through this desert. <laughs> I remember looking out over these plains and Aragorn comes up to me and I remember just looking out there and it was so vast. And it made me feel so small, scanning the horizon, and it kind of really lent itself. It was amazing. You're about to see me go and have another look at the Palantir. Not before Orlando finishes off his red riding on impression, though. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I'm used to those hobbits taking the mickey out of me. Young Peregrine Took. Wonderful talent. Here's Pip up to no good. What you do? The idea that Gandalf sleeps with his eyes open is a wonderful concept. Like Elijah Wood. Elijah Wood sleeps with his eyes open. Elijah Wood sleeps with his eyes open. They're not, like, wide open. They're just open just enough where you can see that you're in REM state. Where and... it's slightly creepy? Yeah. It's kind of like Gandalf right there. Do you know what I did here, Dom? What? I said to Pete, you know what I'd love to do? What? I'd love to do the, what do you call it, the Harrison Ford thing. Oh, Indiana Jones? Yeah. So I said, why don't I get the jug and put the jug there? And he said, oh, you can't because it's the wrong scale. It's not Hobbit scale. And then this guy from the back went, ah, actually, we have it made in Hobbit scale as well. That's great. How great is that? There was never anything in the script or us talking to anyone that we were going to use that or that anyone was going to lift it up. Right. But they had made it in two scales, just in case. Great. Yeah. Shows the dedication there. We actually filmed the other side of this where I am inside the Palantir. But when they watched it back, I think they thought it was too kind of sci-fi. Right. And it made it something else. So what did it look like? It was all I never, I've clouds. never really seen it, but I, I think it was supposed to be all flames right. and just me standing in the middle of all these flames. It's really hard as an actor to stop at something where you, you have to have something passing through you. It's very difficult. I think Billy Boyd handles this really well. Beautiful. I mean, you really believe that thing's starting to take him over and he can't take his hands off it. See, now at that point, he gets to have a little glimpse at Aragorn. Yeah. And it's all solved very simply by just throwing your cloak over it. This is you, you're going to help me, you see. And then Gandalf just pushes me out of the way. Get out of it. Oh. Good, that. Once again with Pete. He keeps showing every so often that we're small. 
but it's not a big issue. Just then he was able to cut away, show a little shot of a smaller guy falling down, and then back to the real Billy. Who would have been falling? Yeah. <laughs> There's the hands here, tall Paul. Not Ian McKellen, because Ian McKellen has ridiculously big hands. Yeah, I mean, his hands could have been OK for that shot, I think. Yeah. But it was actually Paul. And I don't know if anyone listening has ever had a seven-and-a-half-foot man straddle them. It's quite a scary experience. And the fear that you see in my eyes here is actually more about that than about the Palantir. He was dead. This is a mix of two things. Like, that shot, I think, is from principal photography. But then they added some lines that they really wanted in, like the burning tree that you heard before, mm. which was done in pickups, like, two years later or something. So they had to match that shot. I think we went back to New Zealand two <laughs> years after we'd finished filming, or two and a half years after, to add some more scenes between Pippin and, and Gander, because it was clearly a, a, a substantial strand in, in the story, and uh, Peter felt we needed a little bit more of it. There was no lie. In... It was done so piecemeal, however, that I've only got the a rather general impression that... that Pippin is naughty, Peregrine uh, Took, he's the fool of a Took. But that Gandalf loves him because he admires him and he admires his bravery, even as he's chastising him for his bumptiousness, really. Sauron moves to strike the city of Minas Tirith. And of course, in this scene, Théoden creates a kind of standoff that it's not obvious anymore now that things are moving on and, and I'm back in control. It's not that obvious that I'm going to be just another member of this group. I am the king, and I am the king of Rohan. And if you think that we're going to come to your aid, or I'm going to carry on just throwing my soldiers behind all this a variety of endeavors, then you're mistaken, unless it's OK with me. It's not an automatic assumption. Rohan must be ready for war. Tell me, why should we ride to the aid of those who did not come to ours? Which sets up a scene later on where he then says, when Aragorn comes in and says, Gondor calls for aid, and Theda then says, and Rohan shall answer. It's a wonderful piece of kind of long-distance tension, if you like. You must come to Minas Tirith by another road. At this point, Gandalf is kind of taking a new kind of position in the story, becoming more of a guide as opposed to a leader. Certainly in the Fellowship, he's, he's more of a leader. Now he's kind of just saying, this is what's going to happen, I can't really get myself involved too much, but these are my suggestions, you know? I love this little scene. This tells an awful lot about these two characters. The sense that between the two of them, once Pip gets on the horse, that they might not see each other ever again is a terrifying prospect for both of them. But it's wonderful that Mary's ahead of him. Mary's a little more kind of emotionally developed and little more mature than Pip. Pip's a kind of, he's a bit of an innocent, really. Well, they're all innocents in a way, but probably Pip is the most innocent of the four of them, I think. And Mary's there before him. This is lovely seeing this. And you, you're coming with me. So this shot was done at one particular time. Yeah. And as we walk into the stable, that was done in reshoots. So this now was done not too long ago. Because we filmed this scene one way where like, you're angry with me here. Yeah. But by the end, we kind of made up and you said, we'll see the Shire again. Which is in the trailer. Well, yeah, which is in the trailer. The King. Not in then the Pete and Fran decided 
that they liked it better that we haven't kind of so you're still angry with me I don't know what's happening yeah. and before you know it we're off yeah it's more dramatic yeah it is it leaves the audience thinking well I hope they get to see each other again because these two friends are now not leaving under the best possible terms Run, Show us the meaning of haste. Mary. This must have really hurt your winky dink going that fast. Never good on the horse with good, good, good. Never? Skill issues done. Aside from Frodo and Sam, who have a kind of master and servant relationship, one of the strongest relationships, if not the strongest relationship in terms of just an out-and-out -out friendship, is Merry and Pippin, because right from the off, they're best friends. You know, Legolas and Gimli have an incredible link by the end of the Fellowship, but that's grown throughout the trilogy. And, you know, all these other relationships happen because of the journey that they take, whereas Merry and Pippin have always been best friends. They've known each other since they were babies. It should really irk the audience that they're now off on separate journeys. But, you know, by the time we get to the third movie, everybody's off on their own separate journey. That's the whole point of the third movie, I think, is this furthermore breaking of the fellowship. This scene is very kind of... You should write scores. Yeah, it'd be good, wouldn't it? Take her by the safest road. A ship lies anchored in the grey Liv Tyler, she's got that high-pitched voice that I like. Hey, guys. That was a scene that Fran and Philippa wrote. I think mainly it was something that Fran came up with that she felt very strongly about. And it was initially going to be in the Two Towers. It was another one of those magical Fran gems of really trying to, always trying to connect Arwen and Aragorn together somehow throughout this story, though they're so far apart. And in that moment, she's made the decision to leave Middle-earth because her father's told her just really that there is nothing there for her. There's nothing left, that there is no life for her in Earth. So she leaves and along the way she has this vision, which I guess is a sort of premonition of what will be. And in that moment she sees her child and Aragorn and it's very emotional for her. Number one, because she's seeing that and it encourages her to then turn around and go back. But also I think she's quite enraged at her father for lying to her. Um, because he did see that, and he didn't tell her about that, and he sort of sent her on her way. Poor Liv, she spent the entire film just crying and reciting poetry. Well, Liv has a, a great beauty, but an inner beauty as well, and she taps into her emotions very easily, so she's a very open, emotional, warm being. And for an actor, I don't think you could want a better attribute than, than that sort of facility with your emotions. I think she's a natural, very giving actor, and it was, a, it was really lovely to work with her. Tell me what you have seen. I think the hardest things for me about portraying Arwen were the, the elven characteristics and take it all in, all these incredible traits that they have of being all-knowing, very keen eyesight and hearing, and they're incredibly kind and in touch with nature and in the world, and all these things are sort of these perfect beings, and then how to put that onto film, you know, in a realistic way that people could relate to them. I was always sort of trying to find the balance of that.
And sometimes in the beginning, I found it really stifling and I didn't know how to let go. And as time went on, I learned how to try and let go of all that and just focus on the fact that she's also just a woman and a woman in love and willing to do anything she can to be with the man that she loves. From the ashes of fire shall be woke. I was often struck by her ability to embody that aspect of, of that particular character too and the sadness that, that was inherent in that character and the sadness that with being torn between her father and her love. The crownless again shall be king. Throughout the shooting, Fran and Philippa and I sort of naturally formed this really kind of special bond. And one of the great gifts, I think, that Peter has, one of the things that makes him such a brilliant director is that he's able to see that in the people that help him. He has this incredible sort of support team around him of people that are working with him. And he saw that and he really let us go with that. And so we just started to really talk and dream and, and come up with a lot of things. And um, obviously they were working on it all the time. I was just absolutely delighted when Fran started to direct the scenes with uh, Arwen and myself. And uh, I really loved the way in which she directed and the way in which she talked to Liv and I and the fact that she'd also been so involved in the writing of it and the telling of that particular story. She always said the right things. She always seemed to say exactly the right things. And certainly Liv responded very well too working with her and the scenes with that all right now that she directed were beautiful I think. I was given bless his heart by Richard Taylor one of Aragorn's swords which was Narsil and became Anduril when he reforged it the sword that was broken in Imladris it dwells I'll tell you how they did these shots if you want them. Yeah. There's a couple of different ways. But normally, we'd sit on a barrel, kind of pretend horse, and a tall pole would sit behind me, so that close-up shots of me, you'd still see Gandalf behind. And then sometimes, Ian could even be behind, and he would sit on something, and I would slink down to be as low as I could. Minas Tirith is described quite succinctly by Tolkien as a seven-tiered city. Minas Tirith. The center of the Gondor lands. City of the kings. And each ring of the seven levels is uh, separated from the rest by a gate. And in some of these shots, they had the barrel on a track. So when you see us riding, like with the, the stuff moving behind like this, yeah. that was actually a barrel on a track which was hilarious trying to make it look real. The Gandalf who's galloping up is a computer-generated character based on my appearance and the movement of a real horse and a real rider. Great set, isn't it? Yeah, fantastic. That's a miniature. But there was a lot of that set there. Look, all this stuff. That was all a set that was built. And they're going up and up and up and up until there it is. That was a beautiful set, that one. It was a large space, and the indications were clear uh, of the palace, the great hall, although it was just the facade that we saw on that set. And then the white tree, rather magical uh, 
presence. Yes, the white tree of Gondor. The tree of That's the tree you had a dream about, remember? Yeah. But Gandalf's like, whoa, just carrying on. This scene coming up, this was done in pickups. Lord Denethor is Boromir's father. Just like the idea of kind of explaining who he was a bit more. And also, I think, helps since showing the relationship between Gandalf and Pippin, which is quite nice. Basically, just will you be quiet? Yeah, just don't, just don't do anything. And Pippin agrees. It's probably a good idea. What's happened um, just before this is that Denethor's found out that his beautiful boy, Paramir, is dead. Absolutely grief-stricken, and that grief is a, a, quite a contributing um, factor in his deterioration. And and these two walk in and um, try to get him back to, you know, to matters of state. Hail Denethor, son of Excelion, Lord and Steward of Gondor. And also, we'll see that he has made the mistake of looking at the Palantir. And therefore become corrupted in his visions. And he loved and trusted Boromir. Perhaps you come to explain this. The danger with Denethor was to play him as a, a silly old man, and he's not. Playing madness, you've got to be so very, very careful not to, um, to drop into cliché. This is still one of my favourite sequences in the first film. Mm -hmm. Look at our faces. We are absolutely gutted. Boromir dies to save us. John Noble is fantastically insane in this film. There's something so flamboyant, in a way, about his performance, but it so works for that character. I just remember every time I, I would see it. him after seeing these scenes in the movie, it would take me a few moments to kind of expel the thoughts of how creepy he was. God, you're just really creepy, man. But he's such a lovely man. How did you? Because of the nature of my role, I didn't really chat a lot with everyone. I'd do my preparation the night before, and when I got onto the set, I, I sort of kept very quiet, and I'd go back to my caravan and try and hold the moment, because Denethor was such a complex and lonely man, and I didn't want to lose the mood. be a time to grieve for Boromir. He fears Gandalf because Gandalf is, in fact, wiser than he is and perhaps can see through him. But he's not a bad match for him, as we shall see. As steward, you are charged with the defence of this city. Now, steward doesn't mean king. Steward means that he's kind of caretaker king, looking after the place until the king comes back. But what's happened with Denethor is he's been steward for such a long amount of time that he kind of feels like he is king, that he is responsible and that, you know, he should be treated as such. He has a, um, a lot of issues, you yeah. would say, in America. He's a truly tragic character in the Shakespearean mode. It's like King Lear. And so I had to go back and find the real man, and then what you see mainly is him in his distracted state. But to do that, I had to go back and find the other man, the man that, you know, was married, fathered two sons, and been a very, very fine steward of Gondor. Before he looked into the Palantir and corrupted himself. Well, he's not even allowed to sit in the throne. He has to sit at this little throne at the bottom of the steps. Right. Well, nobody sits in the big throne at the top. No. Which, you know, psychologically, that must play in your mind. Yeah. The rule of Gondor is mine! 
He sits alone. You notice he doesn't sit on the throne. He sits to the side of it because he's a steward. Basically, he's in a state of abject depression. The last thing he wants is to have his old foe, I suppose, Gandalf, come in and tell him what to do. That was new as well. Yeah. A little bit now. That's one thing about the performances in the movie. We shot so many scenes that even in the extended version probably aren't aren't in there. So many hundreds of shots, thousands of shots. Oh, that, yeah, that not with... everything makes it to the extended, yeah. Yeah. I love the way these, these guards here, their faces are uh, blacked out. They kind of wear stuff over their faces so you can't see them. Mm. It's kind of like ninja. They just guard in the tree? Yeah. Very, very important, Tom. Yeah. That would obviously be a miniature. Yeah, Alex Funky sure did his fair share of good work in these movies, to say the least. He's the, the miniatures cinematographer who actually won an Oscar, I think, last year for, uh, for his miniatures cinematography. And then this was... This was built, this part of the set, in the same place as we filmed outside the doors of Moria. That is fascinating. It's a sunny day that day, wasn't it? And they're also huge lights. Almost impossible to open your eyes. Yeah, you can see that with Ian McKellen there. I, it was blinding, a series of blinding, the eye-aching, sunny days. And a white sap, and very little breeze, and a heavy brocaded costume and wig and... Discomfort is what I remember. So here's a little tip for anyone who's doing any film acting. I know what and, you're going to say. And they have a huge light shining in your face. Just before they say action, close your eyes and look at the sun. Close your eyes, mind you. Don't look directly at the sun. No. You'll blind yourself. You'll pierce your eyes. So close your eyes, look at the sun, and then when they say action, turn towards where you're supposed to look and open your eyes. And you'll be able to open them a lot easier. Because mm, your pupils will be slightly dilated. The same way as they would be if uh, they were sexually aroused. Lord of the Rings is a very, 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 very long story. And long as these films are, they're not long enough to get all the story in. And uh, one way around that problem is to get somebody to uh, keep reminding the audience what's going on. And as Gandalf has the overview, Intends to know what's going on. I was the guy who had to keep everyone up to date with the story so far. Oh, this scene is back in. That's cool. I like this scene. I think we did this scene about 8,000 times. I mean, we, this was like take 437. Yeah, probably. we really spent quite a lot of time on a very short scene, which uh, we were kind of known to do. I, I love this scene because I love the notion that Frodo has a sense that he's not going to make it back to the Shire. That there's not that some kind of naive sense that he's going to be able to make it in his own mind. I, you know, I think it just keys you into the, the inherent kind of wisdom of Frodo, which I think is really important, particularly in this film. As he loses himself to maintain that knowledge that there is this, he knows what's going on. And the day we filmed this was the day that Sir Edmund Hillary came That's to visit right. the set. Which is absolutely extraordinary for me. I was uh, delighted being a mountaineer. It was a, a great day. For anybody who doesn't know, he was the first man to climb to the top of Mount Everest, he, to reach the he, peak. He intends Norgay. That's right. And I took a New Zealand $5 bill where Sir Edmund Hillary is on the, the Peter gave cover. me a $5 bill. He's like, here, have him sign it. I mean, I always saw Peter as a bit of an Edmund Hillary, really. 
Pete always told this great story of Edmund Hillary cutting steps in the ice up to the next base camp whilst all the other mountaineers were asleep. And then they'd get up in, get up in the morning and there they'd be, and like the elves and the shoemaker. And, uh, and Pete reminds me of, of, of him for that. So how about that for a mark on the world that New Zealand has made? It's pretty wonderful. I love that moment because it's so, um, it just shows the sweetness, you know, the sweetness of the holler. He's just got to drive them on. Yes, yes, we do, don't we? We do, for those who are rapidly anti-smoking, put in enough anti-smoking propaganda, and one of them is the catch in the throat that Gandalf has during the scene with Pippin. <coughs> and water has to be brought and... We integrated it into the scene as if Pippin didn't quite approve of, of the rate at which Gandalf smoked. The, service of the, steward now. the scene where I'm looking at the sword and the uniform for Gondor. That was a new scene that they put in to explain where the uniform came from and, and also, you know, to show that Pippin doesn't want to fight. But before we filmed that scene, Pippin starts off in the bed and then when he hears Gandalf coughing with his pipe, he gets out of bed and pours him a glass of water. And you'll probably see at the start of the scene when Gandalf's smoking his pipe, I'm lying in my bed. Right. Uh, but then when it cuts to my side, I'm looking at my sword. What do you think of that? There's a type of things that Pete doesn't really care about, isn't it? It kind of makes me laugh, though. It makes me smile. He just doesn't mind about that stuff. He actually likes it when people pick up on that. Yeah, I like that. Quiet. It's the deep breath before the plum. I think you're on your knees at this point, Bill. I'm on my knees there, Dom, to be honest. But waiting on the edge of one. And I think Ian was there. Yeah, that would work. Yeah, I think that was just totally as it was. Is there any hope, Gandalf? For Frodo and Sam. I love the scenes with Gandalf and Pippin, partly because just seeing how well they worked they played off each opposite each other. And they work so well together, it's it's great. It's just pickups. This was, it's a mix actually, because we did film the scene and then they added some stuff, like this. This is all new stuff, done in pickups. Just to explain that, you know, it's more than just orcs. There's, there's other races who, who support Sauron. Yeah, all the bad guys. There's P. Jackson. There's PJ. Oh yeah, there he is. There he is. You know, that is the first time that I've seen that. Yeah, he's refused to tell people where he is, so I suppose I shouldn't have just said that. But... So Pete Jackson appears in all three films. What is he in the second one? He throws an arrow through a hole in Helm's Deep. And Does he? Goes, yeah. But we have the white wizard. That's got to count for something. Pippin likes Gandalf a lot. Yeah. I think he feels like when he's got Gandalf, it can't be that bad. But he's doubting it here. I didn't know what I was getting into once I signed that contract. I thought it was just for fellowship with the ring but I like the witch king out of all the characters that I played the only reason why I like the witch king is because it only took 20 minutes in um, wardrobe to get ready for the witch king <laughs> and 10 minutes to get out in Oz home with all the other characters like with Gothmog it was another four and a half hour prosthetic workover in the makeup chair which is pretty much you know it was a breeze actually because of the Lurtz character i played in the fellowship of the ring taking 11 hours four and a half hours was just a walk in the park compared to that 
I love the, that city. I think that's beautiful. Very nice place. Full of enemies. He says, looking over at Sam. What Fran and, and Philip are great at doing are, are writing, giving you moments of exposition like that, explaining to an audience where you are geographically or, or what the next phase of the journey is, but it always sounding dramatic and it, it never sounds particularly like, oh, well, here we are at the beginning of the stairs to Kerithungal. They always find a way of integrating it into character, which is a rare thing, I think. Up, up, up the stairs we go, and we did again and again and again on several different sections of staircase over several different years. I remember being so physically uncomfortable during this. Just my back was hurting, and my mm. having that pack on, and I was the, my fat just trying to climb up on those stairs and walking, and I. I just realized that like my the muscles in my legs were starting to atrophy from sitting for so long for so many months in the hobbit feet and I just remember thinking like that's it I'm uh, you know it's really just us on a stage I mean I don't even know if those uh well Minas Morgul obviously wasn't there what was on set was the bridge and the statues what are those things gargoyles or something or those, those statues there the gargoyles None of the stuff going on right at the back of the shot was there, so that was all imagined. I didn't have a vision of it in my mind either. I don't know if there was any uh, sketches. That, had you seen sketches of it? I had. I had seen sketches, but I had. I couldn't remember the sketches when we were there. I just remember wanting to. So, I, so it was. I didn't know what my. They sort of set the mood, though. Those bestial things just kind of set the tone on the set. That was the thing I, I focused on because that was the only sinister thing to sort of pay attention to. That's a signal, Dom, that light thing. Right. Signals everyone to say that we're off to get Minas Terra. Kind of like a, a green on a traffic light. Yeah. Yeah. Go, go, go. Kill people. Yeah, which is wrong. I think I fly out because I'm all I'm looking at is a blue screen. I can't see any of this. And Peter's just saying, you know, you swoop down, you're flying down on your Nazgul. You're just looking around and just peering around and you're flying off to, to battle. And it's like, oh, you don't actually know, you're actually perched, but you, you can sense something. So, and your Nazgul is yeah, screeching, of course. But you're, you can sense that, that the ring's close, so just react to that. I always used to wonder when I was a kid what it was like if humans could be alive at the same time as dinosaurs, and knowing that the sound that they would make at their size would be too painful for human ears to be on the size of our... You know what I mean? And yeah, yeah. I, so I remember just connecting with that idea that there's this huge, massive creature. Peter was really good at describing that stuff. And this was my favorite. When we actually did moments, were tied in with all these extras walking by, I love the way the stuntmen, depending on what they were playing, would totally change their movements. Yeah. Of course, they had to all walk down this ramp, and then they had to stop and then back up the ramp together, and their peripheral vision is bad, and they, so it, would, it was lumbering. It would take forever with them. Now, does it make this noise every time that the, um, the Witch King comes out in his Nazgul? Because that must annoy the neighbors. These stairs were pretty 
treacherous. Incredibly so. Yeah, very steep. They were barely carved out. And they're made of polystyrene. They're not actual rock. There's a little bit of actual rock sort of, of would, layered on some top. Some of it would of break. Break and you just fall. Yeah. And your sword, the scabbard of Sting, would poke me in the eye all the time. And it would also get stuck in the polystyrene. In the polystyrene. As well. So you get and, and with the pack on, like trying to oh. navigate it. And then, just to make matters worse, you put the, the slick hobbit feet on and oh. they would squirt water on to give the rocks that sort of sheen. So it was like it was it was a lot more treacherous than one would think. Sniff something's not right. One air stands up on the back of Oh, my there's head. a dark side to Sam as well, though, eh? Mm. You know, yeah, he'll, he'll kill Gollum to protect Frodo. He'll do that. But there's not many hobbits who would, you know, threaten. You know, it shows you to say Frodo would do anything. He has been nasty. I has called him fat. Oh. You know, it's good for his Achilles heel and his hobbit's tummy. Nothing. But yeah, that is a great moment, Sean. I love that. And I think it, it is very valuable to your character. And it's as well. pickups. It, you know, Fran and Pete and Philippa would, would watch stuff and they'd realize, like, it's too one note this way. Let's add a, a different dynamic. It's great to be able to play those moments, and I think it's great for the audience to be able to, you know, have that complexity. Yep, that depth. You must not fail me. Run, you little tinker. Hello? I'll get up and I'll light this beacon. I'll prove myself. It really dawned on me how integral Pippin is to the story because I love Billy so much and because of how extraordinary he is at doing everything from comedy to drama and everything in between, to, to see him sort of come into his own in the third film like this, particularly in the, in the upcoming scenes in Ministerial. Oh, yeah, it made my heart sing. It was oh. just great to see. This is all new, isn't it? Mm. It's been very quiet across the river. Silence descends here because this is all totally new to me. The garrison may have moved out. Interesting thing for me watching, um, well, this sequence, for example, is the fact that, yes, it, it was filmed in New Zealand, but I can forget that now, and it totally becomes Middle Earth. Pete brought in these new orcs this time who have tumours, not necessarily um, dangerous tumours, but just mutations. That's my finger. It's my tumoured finger. It's only got one finger and one thumb. And, um, and it's Gothmog, the Orc Sergeant. Quiet. I got told by Bill Hunt, who did my makeup, that he actually did the full Orc face without no tumours or anything growing out of it. And when Peter came to get Peter's approval on the actual finished marquette of Gothmog, Peter asked if he could use some of the clay and do a bit of work on it. So he just grabbed clumps of clay and just stuck sticking it over one side because I want him to have like tumors coming he's so he's deformed and that's how Gothmog ended up becoming really twisted and tumored up and I think I was called Pimplehead while we were filming a lot of the extras under their breath they wouldn't say it to my face but they were calling me Pimplehead see this is Osgiliath which is a real capital of Gondor isn't it yeah on the river there which has been slightly well, abandoned well, because yeah. Minister Earth is safer. Yeah. If you have a city on the river, it's vulnerable. Well, yeah. Because people bit. can attack from the water. With the Gothmog, the whole prosthetics covered my whole nose and you could only breathe through your mouth. And if you've been in there all day for a 12-hour, 10-hour shoot, at the end of the day, this mucus tends to build up <laughs> under your nose. And as soon as they said cut, I would say, is that a wrap? Is that a wrap? Uh, hang on, I'll just check Lawrence, go see Peter. Is that a wrap on Lawrence and, and Caro? 
Yes, that's a wrap on Lawrence. I'd grab the I'd grab the prosthetics and just rip it open. Oh, you just couldn't wait to breathe. So footage is intercut here between um, pickups of 2003 and, and uh, principal photography, I think, of three years prior to that. We put that sequence together rather quickly because most people were up to speed with the, um, the stunt group by, by that period of time, so it didn't take terribly long. Bang! Take that. See, Daisy Wenham's got some spirit. Yeah, he's really going for it. The man has spirit. Why'd you call him Daisy, Dom? Well, I, I mean, I call him Daisy because people who have worked with him before call him Daisy Wenham, such as Miranda Otto and Hugo Weaving, I think, have both worked with Daisy Wenham. But it just became common knowledge after a couple of weeks of hanging out with Daisy, or David, that uh, the people that really knew him called him Daisy and that he responded to that. So from then on, it was, it was Daisy Wenham. Do you know why they call him Daisy, though? Is it just because it sounds like David? Probably, yeah, I think. Or does he does he make nice flower arrangements? Not that I've seen. No, not that I've seen, but I wouldn't put it past him. So here we are at the beacon, Dom. Mm -hmm. Very high. Oh, God. Good yeah. climbing skills. Well, it just shows, you know, the Pippin in the third movie that you see is not the Pippin from the first. Now, he's, how, he's how high up are you here? Well, just about eight foot, to be honest. Right. Yeah, maybe about ten foot till you get to the wood and then had to climb up the wood here. You're quite scared of heights, aren't you? I don't like heights too much, to be honest, I Tom. I don't like heights either. And you then... You weren't shackled? No, no, I just did it. And then we tried to work out a kind of interesting way to do this, and this, like, this was, um, Pete. Like, the idea it was broken, and I've done it. Yeah, you did happy and anything. Oh, oh, wait a minute. Heavens. I'm getting out of here. The day that we actually filmed the beacon actually going on fire here, that was pretty exciting, because they did have the full-size beacon, which they, they set light to. And then I would climb down a little bit of the rock next to the beacon and run out a camera shot. And then I'd run back in and I'd climb down a little bit of rock again and, and run out. And I did this until it became completely unsafe with the, the wood all falling. And uh, that shot doesn't even appear in, in, the, in the movie at any point. Risking your life. I could have died. I think it was Peter who said as well that um, <laughs> of a Monty Python moment, really, with the beacons. The fact that as you, you know, we're going now to all the beacons throughout the lands, that a couple of people have sat there next to those beacons for 700 years, just waiting for them to be lit. And then I said, but Pete, you know what the guys who lit the beacon, I said, do they kind of live up there? <laughs> I mean, how long do they wait? I mean, are they there for all their lives, just in case somebody wants to light the beacon and they've got to be there all the time? It'd be a bit of a bummer, really, if you were one of the generations who didn't get the opportunity to light the beacon, especially if you lived to a ripe old age. I said, and how did they light them? How did, how did they keep the beacons dry? Because there's snow and everything. I said, where, where did they live? Have they got little huts up there as well? So we went into this big kind of very amusing fantasy rap about these beacon lighters, and it's a, they think it's a family thing, and it's the box of matches. Each generation is kind of vows to keep dry and available to light this beacon that, that flares up in seconds. <laughs> I mean, look at that. How do you get up there to do that? Look at that, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Yet it is so clever when you think about it, you know? Of course, these beacons that are set off in a row that it can span hundreds of miles, and finally it'll, you know, in time, it'll get to the people that it needs to get to. 
on Vigo. I was talking to Vigo about this, like, and he's saying, well, what should I be doing? What, I had to work out what I should be doing. And he had to go hair and across up these very impractical steps. <laughs> Don't know how many times he did this, but Pete did put him through an awful lot. The tight shot of Miranda and myself was done as a pickup. Uh, we weren't actually there uh, when they originally shot the scene, we weren't in it. Brand new frock for, I don't know, about a minute of, uh, well, not even a minute, a few seconds of screen time, isn't it, really? It's so reassuring, Eowyn, that uh, everything was all right. This time round for this movie, I had a lot of, I had a lot of rewriting because basically when we'd shot the movie, I was, I was really well covered for the second film and the story was really clear. But in the, in the third movie, in Return of the King, the story was all over the place because it had changed so much from the original scripts that they had written. And as we ran out of time, as we were shooting it, it was hard to place it all together and fix up the things that needed to be fixed because there was so much being shot right near the end. Basically, when we came back for reshoots, it was a matter of putting her story back together, taking out the bits that didn't fit and putting in other bits to make everything fit together. Because originally, I didn't ride off to Dunharrow with them. I was standing and watching them right away. But then when we were shooting it, suddenly I was at Dunharrow. I was saying, how did that happen? I was watching them leave, and, and now, I'm, now I'm here. And, and you know, it sort of it was very confusing and muddled. And so a lot of the reshoots for me were just restructuring the story. I have a sword. Please accept it. Now, this sequence here was one of the things that I was most disappointed losing in the theatrical version because it's a huge part of the book. Mary offers his service to Theoden. Pippin's already offered his service, so it'd be nice to watch Mary do it. Probably the reason why it wasn't in the theatrical release. Ah, oh, right. Is because you don't want to over-egg the pudding. It'd be quite nice to see you both with the hobbits, do Yeah, to show that their lives, even separate from each other, are still mirroring yeah. one another. And also, I like eggy pudding. Look, he can't move it. I spoke with Pete, and he liked the idea of, of Mary raring to go and sitting on a horse, and then the horse just... This is great. On ADR, we did a spoof of this, this kind of internal thought. What else could it, would he be saying here? Right. Fed the cat. Doris is coming in to look after the budgie. Oh, fuck it, I left the gas on. Now is the hour. Riders of Rohan. Peter came up to me and said, I really want something from Aymer at this point to motivate the troops and remind everybody of their um, honour and their loyalty and the commitment and their reason why they were going. And um, he opened the book and found the appropriate sequence and got the back of his sides and scribbled down four or five lines of dialogue. And so I went off and learnt them and not even half an hour later or 15 minutes later we were shooting that, uh, that speech. I think sometimes in huge budget, epic scale films, performances can sometimes be substandard because of that. But to Peter's great credit there, he puts the performances number one and everything else there is... Um, that does balance and support it. I must say, I love that, that particular moment is... Um, <laughs> it's a very Peter Jackson moment there, the fact that all those arrows were fired by the Gondorians, but all just happened to Miss Faramir. Tell them they to break cover. We ride for minutes today. 
It's great because it shows the hecticness of battle and, and the randomness, you know, yeah. of what happens. That sometimes it doesn't matter if you're the greatest fighter in the world. You can just turn a corner and, and get hit with a stray arrow or an axe, and it's all over. During the sequence where the Nazgul come over there, there's one particular take where a Qantas plane came over just at the moment where a Nazgul was supposed to come over, since we were filming right next to Wellington Airport. Very contemporary Nazgul. It's great, and the way the Nazgul kill people is just to pick them up and crush them and then drop them on other people. Yeah. Kind of killing two men with one man. What? <laughs> That scene there where I had to grab the spear off him, I couldn't look down because I didn't know where the camera was and I draw the spear up and then plunge it down but I could just see a little space in between his arm and his body and that's where I've got to hit. <laughs> Lucky I hit it every single time otherwise I don't know what I would have done if I had missed my mark even though it's only a plastic spear but oh, you can still inflict damage. I know I've been hurt by a plastic sword by Miranda. I was talking to someone who was doing these sequences with the fell beasts and they were showing Pete how they were lifting up a guy and dropping it down. And Pete said, it's great, yeah. He said, but why? It was just lifting up a guy. Why didn't it run through and lift up three guys on their horses? And that's just the way Pete works, isn't it? That's brilliant. Some people might ask, why is he taking Pippin out? Right. Would you ask that, Dom? I would. Why is he taking Pippin out? <laughs> and I'll tell you why, Dom. Because when this was originally filmed, this was Gandalf and Pippin just arriving in Minister. Well, I suppose Pippin would like to see him, the Nazgul zapped, wouldn't he? And, and you can't trust Pippin to be left on his own, perhaps. You get the feeling that, well, why didn't he do that all the time? Every time the Nazgul appear, why didn't he just switch it on? Was it kind of limited battery life or something? You're only allowed 15 second bursts of it. <laughs> That's it, you've used all your credits on it. So I'm sorry, you can't use it again. It's true, and, 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 and so when I asked Peter Jackson, why can't I just zap my enemies with the same simple bolt of light? He said, oh, well, sorry, and uh, the thing is Gandalf's run out of batteries, and, and the, so is the shop in Minas Tirith, so we, you won't be able to use your uh, staff in that way. Oh, oh, well, that seemed as uh, credible an explanation as any. In the bridge in the West Bank. Yeah, I don't think I'll ever get the opportunity to work on a film again that has a set whereby you can actually ride however many horses in and actually engage in a, in a, a scene on that set. I think in that kind of circle just there was one of the first press conferences that we ever had in New Zealand. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we had a day where the entire fellowship turned up and we, we spoke about the journey thus far and how it was all looking, and it, and it gave... Those guys the opportunity to see Minas Tirith because obviously I didn't film too much. Well, I didn't film anything there, so to to have a look around and see it was great. Astonishing. And these streets were real. They'd built Minas Tirith, the quarry north of Wellington. I love Minas Tirith. It's beautiful. Yeah, it is. It's nice. This is how you would serve your city. This is new, isn't it? You would. Oh, this be the new scene. I think this scene shows the uh, the schism that appears in the relationship between Denethor and, and Faramir. You sent the Ring of Power into Mordor! When we were doing these scenes, everyone knew that the stakes were really high. This was a very hard scene for me because it 
he crosses uh, all of the emotional fields. So it's a very difficult thing to act, this one. There was a, a sense of, if we get this right, um, we've got something special. And so there was always this sense of hushed respect on the set. When we were filming, it wasn't by design or by choice or anything, but John and I didn't actually have very much to do with each other. During the filming, it was always a good morning day, morning John. We didn't really talk to each other. We didn't spend very much time together. That's also just part of keeping that, that method going. It wasn't something that we were conscious of. It was just something that I think because he was Denethor and I was Faramir, we just it sort of just happened that way. But it kept it for his own. But it's funny, I hadn't thought about it until we reflected afterwards that we'd actually kept our distance from each other during the process. Because it helps. At fall, which we had to do many times, I had the biggest bruises on my butt. <laughs> and every, we, when we first started, you know, they'd put down a, a cloth or something or other for me to land on. And I was going to protect my fall with my hand, as you do. But Peter said, no, that looks fake. And we said, all right, we'll just do it. And sort of finished up, they took away the protective stuff and uh, I just did it. I was so bruised, I can't tell you. I've actually got a photo at home, which I never will show anyone, but it's of my bruised butt. What we do for art, eh? I told Peter later, but it didn't seem to affect him. But it was worth it. I loved this scene. Just challenged every acting skill I had. So I'm climbing up the thing. I hate you, this it was so tiring. Yes, precious, you were a wimp. You always wanted to go back to your trailer. No, no, I didn't. Don't tell him that. I'm a very hard-working actor. No, you're not. You skive off whenever you can. <laughs> Up, 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 up. Except for slightly down there. Careful, then back up again. Careful, I remember Elijah saying that he'd come back from a day's work. Everything would just be sore, his elbows and his forearms and his fingers and his chest and stuff because all jacket rocks. And I thought, I'd love to hold you tight and just make you feel all better. Now, when he sees this ring, it's the first time he's seen it in this film. And he can't help himself. And there's desperation. It's involuntary. He's being drawn towards it. But there is al always that moment of... There is always that moment of connection with Frodo still. I mean, even at that point, there is still that moment of connection. The thing is, I just wanted my lunch. By this time, we'd shot it four or five times. Elijah was taking his time, I was exhausted. Oh, no, you're not supposed to say these things. Look, I'm being truthful. Everybody else is blowing smoke up other people's asses. I'm saying the truth. I love that moment as he's sort of starting to plant in my mind the seed for which, you know, will blossom the great schism. The betrayal. The betrayal. Yeah. It's great. It's great. Any grade school kid knows what it's like to have to have a friend say something to another friend and turn them against you. you know? mm. 
Because I played the Witch King and Gothmog, it was I had to talk to myself. But myself was actually a pink cross. You're looking down at yourself now, honestly. You're looking down at Gothmog. You're giving him your orders. And then two weeks later, I'll come back as Gothmog. And do you remember that scene we did two weeks ago where you're getting giving yourself orders? And I went, yeah, well, now you're giving him your boss. It was it totally confused me. It was confusing me that I was uh, playing the same characters and throwing different lines at it. It was just really, really hard. And I, I couldn't wait till it actually came on screen to actually see that. <laughs> oh, look at that. Oh, this is a new scene. What service can a hobbit offer such a great lord of men? This is one of my favourite scenes in the script, actually, when we when we originally shot the film. I like this scene, actually, and I'll tell you why, though. Go on. <laughs> this, uh, I think it sets up the relationship with Faramir and Pippin a bit, so that, you know, at the end, when he's in the fire and stuff, it just gives it an extra kind of... The stakes are higher, I think. Yeah. Yeah, because in the book they become quite good friends, don't they? Yeah. This was yours? Yes, it was mine. My father had it made for me. You see, so it's, uh, well, it was his uniform when he was a boy. I'm taller than you were then. Wow. I'm not likely to grow any a passing of the torch. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're cute. Yeah, yeah, I am. Yeah, you are. So is David. It's one of the cutest scenes ever filmed. I thought that it showed, you know, the essential Faramir in a way, somebody who was, you know, extremely kind, considerate thoughtful individual Proud. but the thing is playing a human and working with hobbits you didn't actually get to work with billy was obviously there but when the camera was on me i'd be working with one of the scale doubles purely so i get the eyeline correct and one day your father will see it yeah some wisdom from uh pippin here he's growing up you see do i swear fealty and service to gondor this um scene what do you know where billy swears allegiance it was quite important for me because what it gave me was a chance to show humanity at the beginning of it, just to look down and why he liked this hobbit, I don't know. I suppose he saw the honesty in the face and the fact that this hobbit would swear allegiance to him probably touched him. And the character, Pippin, did it against the advice of um, Gandalf too. But this was very powerful stuff, and I was so proud of Billy. He's got some wonderful material in this third film. With vengeance. In the ideal world, actors should be listened to, but a lot of the time, you really don't get time to consult too much. But in this, it was very much more collaborative. And I think someone told me once that Peter had said to Philippa, listen to the actors. They know more about their characters than we do. Which was very insightful of him because that's in fact what the actor's job is, to know the character inside out. Peter empowered the actors as much as possible and he'd let the actors have all their own choices in terms of performance. It's only when he thought that there wasn't something working that he would then offer suggestions and, and direction, which was, his direction was always spot on because he knew, he obviously knew the story better than anybody, and he, um, he also knew the characters' storylines, um, certainly as well as the actors, if not better. Such a hard thing to do because it's so kind of, 
It's self-pity, but encased in the truth of the fact that he's going to go and risk his life now. Okay, Father, this is what you want. I'm, I'm going to do it. And I know that it's not going to make a bit of difference. And that's the other thing that's so incredible about that decision. One day, I was watching that reverse being shot. And when he got that take, I felt this... I was watching on the monitor. I felt this jump in my heart. And I did go up to him then and said, I've just, I saw that take to her. That's fantastic. This shot was created in the motion capture studio of Gollum being asleep. I always wanted him to be whiffling when he was asleep. There's lots of great descriptions of, of uh, Tolkien describing him being asleep. Like, he's never totally relaxed. Like, there's always something going on underneath. Like, this, this breath is uneasy and that he's always on pins, even when he's, you know, supposedly relaxed. But here he's duping Sam, pretending to be asleep, and we see what he's about to do now. This is his chance. This particular set of rock was most famously housed at a squash court at a hotel outside of Queenstown. And there was a flood when we were meant to be there filming exterior shots. And we had to go to cover set. And at that point, we'd only been filming uh, scenes from film one, from Fellowship. And because of the rain and the fact that our sets had been washed away, we were faced with uh, a scene from film three. As, I remember the cover. sheer terror, you and I looking at each other's eyes like, I don't remember who said to who, but it was like, are you ready? Or I don't, I don't think I, I'm not ready. Are you ready? Oh, no. Yeah, there and we were like, well, let's just go and talk to Pete and tell him we can't shoot this scene today. I remember there, was that a, there was a moment of panic. And I do believe we did have that conversation of, we can just tell him that we're not ready and we won't shoot it. Yeah. But there was some odd logic, like, it was that frightening to us that we had not yet gone there with our characters that we didn't think it was actually possible. You know, and it's a real credit to Peter. Well, I just remember that glimmer in his eye, like... the time that he allowed us to have to get there. What I valued about what Pete did was, was he just had confidence. I remember, like, we, we broached the topic with him sort of as a question, and I just remember him sort of cocking his head and this little glimmer in his eye, and he was like, no, you'll do it. You know, and he, he just kind of... He had there was confidence. Yeah, there was no failure. Failure was not an option, and we were going there today, and it was going to be great. And, you know, in three years' time, people are going to be sitting in a movie theater watching these moments that we're shooting right now, that you're watching right now. And, uh, and it's a uh, wonderful scene as well. I mean, it, you know, a hell of a thing to jump into because it is so different from anything that we had done but also exciting on the level that we had the opportunity to play these moments, which are wonderful moments. It's always dark here. So we all basically played our characters' beats in different years. The elven bread. This scene uh, did change a lot. Like, I think a lot of the scenes in which we would add a moment or two to uh, during the pickups, because it's obviously had, you know, a year, two or three to have some breathing room and to gain some perspective on where we want that scene to go. I remember we took ages deciding how to play this moment, not so much on set, but on the motion capture stage and then in ADR, we played that those lines over and over and over again to try and find how you'd say he took it. He took it. He took it. I see him. He's always stuffing his face when Moss is not looking. On set, we actually sh shot Sean pummeling into me, and uh, he actually did the shots when the, the shots were on Gollum, and then he was beating sandbags when, when the shots were just on him, so he could really lay into them. But he still gave me a bit of a run for my money. Oh my. 
Around take 12, you'd be you'd be thinking, God, do I have any more? And it, you'd just go flat for three or four takes, and then you'd go back and, and you'd, you'd look get, at it you'd and get back into it, yeah. and then you rediscover it, new a new layer of of motionality. So like, it was like a learn how to cry, boot camp and war, and playing with all the different variations of crying. You know, the sort of actor thing, like, oh, I'm just gonna fake it because I can't do anything else, and then okay, that's not good enough. Now I'm gonna I'm exhausted. So if I don't find a way to have it be real, I'm gonna have to just keep doing it over and over again. So. There was always a journey within those scenes to get to where we needed to get, and it would take, you know, a certain amount of time to navigate through some of those roads to ultimately get where we needed to be. Or we, or I would feel in my heart of hearts that I just nailed the emotional pinnacle of it, sort of on the first rehearsal when Pete, when we got there, we weren't even in costume and stuff, and right. and then you sort of think that now you're going to spend the next sort of six hours trying to... The next 12 or 13 12 hours. 12 or 13, like, getting back there, but then you don't. You never want to repeat. That's not. You're not trying to do something that you already did. You always want it to be new, so... But, you, but you'd be lying to yourself if you didn't say that you have some emotional memory of what it was that you did, so... And then once you finally recapture the... The power of it, then, then pushing through and, and exploring new new layers. It's it's uh, it was a pretty, it's pretty amazing. It's like a you know emotional oh, acting oh. aerobics. Yeah. Probably the first, the first time that I cry in the cinema when I'm watching it was at this particular point. Because he didn't do anything wrong, did he? No. I hate that. Sometimes that's what happens in life, though. Really? Yeah. You're going about your business and somebody throws away your limb spread. Metaphorically. Of course. I think this is really sad. You know, the knowledge that they're going to die. This is where he said he'll try and take back Ascalius. It's a suicide mission. Absolute suicide mission. It's a matter of duty. Brave and foolhardy. And the noisy eating, riding out to death sequence. And I just think it's incredible that they're not actually, you know, they're not streets that existed. All of that was purpose built for for riding out on the streets of Minas Tirith. My armor rather rather cumbersome in a way. The old armor. Was extremely practical, but not conducive to marvelous horse riding. And Steve Old, the um, the horse master, asked if I'd ridden horses before, and I said yes, I had. I'd ridden them for for movies, and he said, "Oh, well, here's your horse. Get on it." And got on the horse and sort of trotted and cantered around a bit, but you know, didn't have a great relationship with the horse. But oh, all right. And then it got to the stage where we had to do a sequence, and it was like, okay, and action. But the, um, the horse literally went in the other direction and it was like 10 minutes before I could actually bring it back to the set. I knew that there was something slightly wrong with uh, my relationship with the horse. The uh, horse master told me that he'd bought the horse for $200. Sort of goes with the whole Faramir character, really. So, oh, Faramir, give him the cheapest horse. Nobody loves him. Probably a gift from Denethor. It was the cheapest horse we got, 200 bucks. Give it to Faramir. In this particular sequence here, um, there was a second camera who'd been following. They'd done the sequence maybe three or four times up and down the stretch of paddock, and the second camera said, yep, yep, no, terrific, absolutely terrific. We were following Faramir the whole time. We've got some brilliant stuff, absolutely brilliant stuff. And I said to Jeff Murphy, oh, Jeff, would you mind if we just had a, 
bit of a squeeze at that particular sequence just to see if the riding ability is okay. And um, we rewound the footage on the, the video split and looked at it and I said, yeah, it's pretty good, Jeff, really, really good. But the fact is that the camera wasn't actually on me. Um, that's not me. <laughs> Sing, Master Hobbit. It's a charged atmosphere on on the set when we were doing the, the singing eating one. It's charged. You could, you could hear a pin drop. So this sequence happened quite late. Um, wasn't in a script. Was it principal photography this bit? Um, I'd like to say yes. In fact, I can say yes, and I'll tell you why. Because the song that comes up here. I think someone was supposed to write, but they changed the schedule, so they didn't have time to write it. And they asked me if I could write something. I mean, it's beyond simply asking him to sing and use his vocal talent, but to use his songwriting ability and rely on that and, and trust in that is incredible. And I think it's a really important point to make about Peter. You know, I think he was always paying attention to the talent around him and trying to utilize it as best he could. I wanted it to to have a sort of Celtic feel and an old feel to it. So I listened to some old sort of Scottish music because I wanted it to sound like it wasn't really something that Pippin would sing. It's not something that Pippin and Mary would, you know, stand on a table and sing in a, in a bar like they do earlier in the movie. Mm. Wanted it to sound like it's a song that his granddad would have sang or, you know, in a time before the hobbits lived in the Shire when they were still looking for a home. And that's, I came up with that tune. When he sang that, I think it just took everyone by surprise. You may hold your breath saying, oh my God, that is so beautiful. I certainly had tears in my eyes. I'm sure everyone else did too. I actually remember coming into work and I saw Victoria Sullivan, who worked on continuity on the film on main unit. And I said, how did the song go? And she said it was fantastic. And she said that she was crying. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. That's, that's nice. Isn't that sweet? Mm. This is the Roman, the Roman, the Ronan, the Ronan. <laughs> The Rohan <laughs> camp at Dunharrow, which is effectively a place where they all come together before the final push into battle. Grimbold, how many? This bit, Grimbold, how many, and that bit, it was just a way of gathering information about how many uh, of, the, of the commands were there and how many weren't. And I had terrible hay fever. You know, kind of allergic to horses and sometimes grass. Not a good combination here. Or for the press junket, which we did in LA before this was released in the cinema, and they decided to make it look like a Rohan camp and had grass and hay and all that in there, which really affected Dom. How many times do you think I should use that day? Honestly, 4,000. Yeah, yeah, honestly. Which got me to the point that I laughed so much I wet myself at once. Well, we'll on the yeah. Sorry about that. And this bit was done in... Where was I shot, Dom? 
I'm not too sure. <laughs> not too sure about that. Um, New Zealand. There you go. Definitely New Zealand. Dunharrow was actually filmed. It was a re remarkably beautiful location. There was the encampment, which was filmed just outside Queenstown. To get to this location, it was quite isolated. We all had to get up at six in the morning and hop into a small Cessna plane and fly across Milford Sound, land on a, uh, a sheep paddock and hop into four-wheel drives and get driven up to this, uh, this spot that they'd chosen. It was quite a, quite a common occurrence, really, travel into the most remote parts of New Zealand. Kind of like the ring, he's drawn to that area. Doesn't really know why. What does he see? Figure is a very intense method actor. I think he has a real nobility about him. I consider him to be a friend and uh, a wholly admirable fellow and a magnificent actor. I was inspired by watching uh, Vigo and his commitment. You know, when I think about Vigo, I think about commitment. He, in due course, inspired everybody else to rise to the same level, or to at least try to. There. A true esquire of Rohan. Some nice shots there with me and my helmet. I think my, our helmets were cursed, Bill. I don't know yeah. That's why we didn't like it. It's because we've got tiny little, uh... What? Tiny little heads. Ah, oh, right. See, you jumped in too quick there. Well, you left the boys. Now, this is one of those scenes where I never even saw... Dominic, when I was doing it, I, I did the scene with somebody else and he shot his after me with somebody else. And then he wasn't there in that shot either. I was just trying to push along fresh air, really. You should not encourage him. You should not doubt him. It's one of the more revealing scenes about Emma and Elwyn's relationship. I remember Peter, and we were trying to go for a double-edged thing for, you know, on one hand, trying to scare her a little bit and on the other hand also trying to be tender and gentle with her really trying to connect in fact when i when i look at that scene i can you know i remember peter peter was just wonderful the way he guides you through a scene he really is like a conductor and i can i can still see peter's eyes because peter had this way of actually acting everything out for you a little bit you know, to help in his sort of explanation of what he wanted, he would also kind of show you a little bit or feel it. I mean, he felt all the characters. I mean, you'd see him in the monitor and he would be behind there feeling it all 100% and going through the motions. And so when I look at the monitor and I look at myself doing the scene, I can still see Peter's eyes looking at me as he's doing the scene to me. As far as the appendix goes, the, the story of Arwen and Aragorn, or Aragorn and Arwen in the appendix, is it, it's really detailed and it really tells the history of these two people and then from the moment they meet until the moment they die. And there were so many amazing, magical, romantic sort of ideas and, and scenes and moments in that. But unfortunately, a lot of them we couldn't actually tell because um, the time frame that the films take place in is not the same as the book. So there was a lot of things that actually happen post to the films um, that we wanted to be able to tell in the story because they really showed to the extent that Arwen loved Aragorn and what she was willing to do to be with him. And so Fran came up with this idea 
to sort of tell a lot of those scenes through flashbacks or through this sort of intuitive connection that Aragorn and I would share, or these visions and premonitions, which happen all throughout the films. I take my leave. Yes, sir. Says good little moment of drama here, because you might think it's Arwen. Is that Arwen? Is it Mary? We don't know. Too tall for Mary. It's that guy from the Matrix. My Lord Elrond. Aragorn and Elrond are, uh, have been bound together for many, many years, and if you read the books, it becomes very, very clear. It's not quite as clear in the, in the films. It's a storyline that, because there are so many storylines, it's a storyline that hasn't been fully fleshed out. But his relationship with Aragorn is very much one as father to son, and he's a mentor to Aragorn. The difficulty with his relationship with this son figure is that actually this son figure is in love with his daughter. That Aragorn is a human being and his daughter is an elf uh, or is an Eldar. If she stays with him, she will be living in without him because ultimately Aragorn will die. Also, Elrond knows that Aragorn is or should be the king of Gondor and that ultimately he has to put aside the ranger and become this king figure that he, and really Elrond is the one who, who has the ability to, to push him into into doing just that. So that's that's really Elrond's major role, I suppose, in, in the third film, is to spur Aragorn into, taking up, the sword. In the same way, give Andrew to um, Aragorn. Uh, it's not concealed under my cloak for the whole scene it, it you know you wait for the for the close-up and then give me the sword and it seems to come out of the cloak but yeah it was a huge absolutely enormous sword and much harder to wield than for instance the elvish sword that I'd, uh, Elrond uh, wielded extremely beautiful but much heavier very masculine kind of phallic I suppose but enormous steel object but that was actually practically quite difficult to just lift it up and out of behind the cloak. It was great with, um, with Vigo because we, we both really enjoyed learning the Elvish and trying to in inject as much Elvish as we could into the scenes. Of course, some of the scenes would be changed in English and therefore they had to be changed in Elvish. And so learning Elvish at the last minute is well nigh impossible. So it did become difficult, but certainly um, Vigo and I were of like minds, and I found Vigo. I mean, as everyone knows, he's a Renaissance kind of guy. You know, he's a, he took the whole story very seriously and completely embraced um, the world and his character's journey and all the little um, aspects of that character. He'd kind of take on board as part of himself. And so, when you're on set with Vigo, it's you know you're seriously involved in the work at hand. And how you can how you can make that work, and the, the minute eye of each moment, and so from that point of view, completely different uh, again from say working with Liv, or completely different from working with Ian McKellen, or completely different working with all of them. I mean, all actors are different. We're all human beings. We're all different. But that's certainly Vigo's great strength is his ability to create this? and fully realise the, the character situation. We originally had a, a scene, something like this, but I was really furious in the scene, and, and in the end, I think we thought that it was 
was too angry and kind of alienating. Also, it was it was shot inside a tent, and just all the whiteness of the background in there just wasn't very interesting to look at. And I think they wanted to get something with trees and horses, just something with a, a nicer backdrop to it. He has nothing left to give. He can barely hold together his brain for one woman. He can't separate his mind into two separate vital components and keep one for a strawberry blonde and one for a, a dark-haired elf. And then whatever's left to kind of work out how he's going to, you know, be king of the lands of uh, Gondor. So a third, I guess. Well, less than a third. Maybe he might separate a half for that task and then have to give a quarter each to two women and there's no space for that. What's he going to do for the eating part of his brain? Well, he, he couldn't eat. The Lembas bread is, is, is gone. Don't worry, Erwin. Soon mm -hmm. you'll be on a horse with Mary. Where do you think you're off to? That sequence where Aragorn tries to sneak off and go and take care of the parts of the dead and, and Legolas and Gimli come up and say, you didn't think you were leaving without us. That was filmed just around the bay from where I was living in Wellington. And then there's a cut to another time, another place. It's just so funny when you look at how it all cuts together, you know, and you think about how we were down in this beautiful location in Queenstown shooting that sequence, and then we moved just for that little insert down to, to Wellington, back to Wellington at some point and just shot it like months later. Where's he going? He's got to go down the road to ruin. And that's one of my... One of my doubles on the back with uh, the real Orlando. I think that may have been the lady double. Why does he leave on the eve of battle? Bruce Hopkins plays... Gambling. Gambling. Right hand man to King Theoden. Yeah, owns the only casino in Edoras. <laughs> this is one of my favorite scenes, this, this little bit. It's Bruce as well, and it's nice because his character developed, he was just kind of a sidekick a non-speaking role, really. And then we decided that we should all kind of pump it up a little bit. Now this one. Well, this is the scene, this is the last scene that we, that we did on principal photography. It was a very sad day because we knew that it was all ending. And that kind of added to the, the sadness of the scene. The people are to follow your rule in my stead. Bernard has such a, a rich quality about him, everything he says just comes across with such depth. I don't know if that's just because he's that kind of person that everything resonates in that way. But I, I really enjoyed working with him. He has a, a great weight behind him, I think. You believe that he's a king, you believe that he's lived through a lot. And I liked the fact that I didn't have to cry in this scene, so many scenes. They wanted me to cry. I don't like crying very much because I always think it looks like you're feeling sorry for yourself as a character, so it was nice in that scene that we just went for something sort of more removed than upset. Not grieve. Grieve is really difficult. It takes an enormous amount of concentration for me, particularly if it's expected of you, if someone says they want that to happen. If they don't tell you they want it to happen, sometimes it just happens, and then it's brilliant, but, but when you're trying to cry, I find it really difficult. No more despair. Parts of the dead. It was an incredible location. You know when you're on the beach and you make little sandcastles out of dripped sand? 
It was kind of like that. It was as if somebody was just dripping rocks one on top of another. And they were just these huge pinnacles. Shooting this, we flew out on a helicopter. It was one of those sort of, you know, as a, as a young actor, first movie, one of those movie moments. We did so much stuff in helicopters, though, that it became sort of like taking a bus. We shot this with Philippa and Fran. We flew out to the Braindead location across the water from where I was living. It was a beautiful location. Small crew, really small crew. Just a cameraman, a couple of horse people. Had to be really limited. Guerrilla shooting, Fran Welsh style. It was great. We shall call them from the grey twilight. Most of the lines we were using there from, were from the book, and they were some of the best. Best dialogue, actually, was like, for, was some of that real deep imagery that Tolkien was initially creating in The Lord of the Rings. Could put so beautifully, like, winter thickets coming up through, you know, and the, I see shapes of men and horses, and the way that it was, it was all very magical and sort of spooky and, and mysterious. You know when you walk into the into the paths of the dead. I mean, obviously we just walked into like a black curtain sort of thing. I do not fear the dead. Somebody get rid of this curtain. It's in the way. I mean, I actually had a line there. I'm so gutted it isn't there because it's only for this purpose, this reason only. Because my makeup artist, my second makeup artist, gave me this ring, which was inscribed with "To wherever it may lead," which was at that point in the third movie. That was what Legolas says. I do not fear death to whether it may lead. You know, Vigo says, Aragorn says, he says, I do not fear death and goes in. Legolas was supposed to say, to wherever it may lead or something, you know, and go in. And then Gimli goes in and, you know, says, well, if a dwarf can go, can't go into an underground where an elf can, then what sort of a dwarf am I? I was really gutted when I saw the third movie and that line wasn't there, just because that was the one line with the ring on it. And I was like, and I've been telling everyone, yeah, it's a line from the third movie. And... But um, it was so funny because we'd walk in there and then suddenly get caught up in a whole load of curtains, black curtains. Here they go. Put the fires out. Collect all the horse crap. Uh, this was shot in Wellington by uh, John Mahaffey directing, I believe. And funnily enough, if you were to look straight out from where we were, you'd be staring at the city. I mean, it was literally right there. That's such as the magic of filmmaking. Little hobbits do not belong in war, Master Meriadoc. There's Merrick getting ready. No doubt in his mind that he's coming with them. But hold on. I'd helmet, though. None of my riders can bear you as a burden. I want to fight. I will say no more. Can't be any clearer than that. You know, I mean, it comes from a nice place. Theoden doesn't want him to die. He wants to protect him. He doesn't want him to see the things that he's going to see. But Merry is so desperate to be involved in battle. That was quite a complex sequence to shoot. Obviously, I can't be picked up by Miranda. Not only does she not possess the bicep, but the scale issue comes into play. So we did some stuff on green screen and tried it four or five different ways. It's effective. This was shot down in the South Island. It was quite fun, actually. We had a circuit to do, just galloping around. <laughs> just come past the camera every minute or so and just take 50 riders around in a circle. Look at that lot. Now, where have they come from? <laughs> Amazing piece of organization. It's definitely not CG. <laughs> that was a big day, I remember that. Easily the most awesome 
battle sequences I've seen up to now. Not even battle sequences, just crowd sequences at this point. You know, they just look... It looks so authentic. Mm. Inside the paths of the dead, we did set stuff, which was obviously kind of reacting to things that weren't there that would be put in later and smoke and effects and cave work. None of this stuff was there when we were shooting this. This was just a huge blue screen. We were just standing there reacting to this voice. There was obviously this this set, which was built around this sort of tunnel-like set, and a lot of dry ice, green mist, to give the sense of, like, spookiness. Well, of course it's spooky, because I'm an actor and I have an imagination. I live in the world of the imagination, so I can spook myself very easily if I choose. You know, actors are like that, really. They kind of, as long as they get some some slightly kind of, you know, reason behind, however ridiculous and kind of unreal it is, as long as they get that fixed in their heads, they can, they can do anything. The focus points for those sort of wraithy things that are appearing was actually Peter's hand. All right, John, now it's over here now, and... Uh, just a little will-o'-the-wisp and you're just trying to blow it away and it just won't go away. Now it's over here, over here, my hand over here, see? And, and now over here. Pete was saying stuff like, okay, there are gonna be hands grabbing you from the ground, there are gonna be things coming up out of the walls and things all over the place. It was like in earlier takes and different things, react, you've got to react to these things now, now, now. And it was like all this, it was, it was pure Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson brilliance, like just do it, you know. See all these skulls here, Dom? Yeah. That's still one of those. Does it? Yeah. Get it in your house now, do you use it as an ashtray? Uh, I haven't used it as anything yet. They were filming one of these sequences where I was filming something else in another studio next door. I thought I'll have one of those. Throw it in the back of my car. Did you steal it or did you ask for it? No, I stole it. Oh, Billy, thousands of them, though. I know, but that's bad. Thousands? Someone will steal something from you sometime. What? Yeah. It will come back to you. Hope it doesn't. I'll return it next time I'm in New Zealand. Return of the Skull. There were parts of it, a blue screen, particularly where you get where you want the, the spectral effect to take place. All it does, it means that you have to use your imagination. Uh, actors don't find that difficult at all. It's not, it's not a problem. We have an imagination. We live in the world of imagination. So if you stick us in the blue room and say, okay, you're in the, in a huge cavern and there are ghosts coming over there. There may be a ghost behind you there. We see that. We see what is described when we are being directed. And it's no great craft. It's, we live in the world of the imagination. Everyone who has ever heard a good story being told and has seen the picture of what's happening has been there. That's just what you have as an actor. The way is shut. He was incredible, Vigo. It was made. Because, I mean, he was endless. You know, I mean, Legolas is just sort of standing back there looking hit with the bow, you know what I mean, making it happen. But Vigo was like dialogue and carrying this moment, carrying so much of these, so many of these moments. You know, I was always there with him. John was, was there as well, unless it was his Brett Beatty, his double, but it was hard work at that point. You know, he was getting thrown sort of chunks of dialogue in the morning. Yeah, we're doing that this afternoon. You know, I mean, this is really, this is big stuff for an actor. 
what he's doing right there. That's really intimidating, sort of, you got to bring it, sort of acting. And when you get the dialogue the day in the morning before, it can be really intimidating. But that was, it was like, okay, let's go to it, got to get it, do it. If you don't, well, you don't. What we can get is what we can get. And it was, it was all, they were so fantastic as moments in film. Everyone just wanted to get them. We all just really wanted to make it happen. Fight for us. Wonderful. He grows in confidence and stature throughout the making of these films. What say you? It was at that point where we were grabbing things in such a sort of desperate and yet kind of concise way. It was crazy. It was crazy. When I look back now, having had the experience of working on, in film and, and on the films that I've been, had the great fortune to work on since, I just can't believe the genius of Peter and his whole team of people to actually get all that. It's just courage. It's just, it's just really admirable when somebody just says, okay, let's do it, you know, just do it. There's a screen over there, there's a thing there. Guys, go to it. You take a look at it and think, Whew. all right, let's get on with it. It's just amazing. At that point in the movie, we'd done so much. There had been so many other sort of trippy things going on and so much other crazy stuff and so much fantastic stuff with scenery and everything else that, I mean, if Peter told me that Legolas was going to be jump running around naked at that point, I probably would have stripped off and started skipping a jingo. Do you know what I mean? It was like we were all such sort of Jackson followers that he could have said anything and you'd go, yeah, sure. So at this point, Aragorn grabs Legolas and tongues him and you'd have gone, oh, right, yeah, that makes sense. Look at this. This is incredible. They had this big wall of, of synthetic skulls that they'd made. It was like running along a balance beam, but there was a wall to fall back on. You know, you would stand up there and they would pull the, the bag release and you'd be covered by skull upon skull upon skull and have to sort of pull your way out of it. That's crazy. Yeah, see, that's all skulls. That was one of the ones I had. Well, that is a lot, isn't it? Told you. I was just walking past, I thought I'll have one of those. Thousands of men. Would be a bad way to die, buried under human skulls. Very few people have gone that way, though. Oh, I was lucky. They built that cave entrance, and it was so real-looking, because we were back three foot into that rock face, basically hidden behind that piece of rock that was built to look exactly the same as the rock face on the outside. So you come out through the hill, and then you see a sea before you. This was one of those really powerful moments where you were inspired by the landscape of New Zealand and looking out over the landscape. And Pete was just like, there are ships burning down there. And I had no idea what he was talking about, really. Or what, at that point, what, where we were in the movie, I couldn't figure it out. And I was like, so this is which bit? That was one of the things that was another thing that Pete was so magical about him, was like, how did he know all of that? And obviously he knew he had the script and he's a director and he has, you know, all the shots line up and he's got he's got to pick them off. But I mean, that, that being also my first movie, I was just like, what, there are what? There are ships down there, they're burning? Okay, great, okay, fine. And how does that make me feel? That makes me feel, you know, and he'd say, okay, well, the, obviously he'd give you a quick, you know, insight into all of it. But it was just like, just react on the moment. The sequence, it looked rather easy actually, but it's potentially extremely dangerous because the head is right next to the um, hind hoof and it, the horse, if it's startled in any way, 
obviously will move in an unpredictable fashion and my head gets totally crushed. And also to pretend to be wounded severely, not move too much when you're actually seeing the hoof come right down next to your eye. So not as easy as it actually looked. Yeah, this is the scene when I'm, I have to do the movements because it's just like a 40 gallon drum on wheels and I'm getting pushed in. But I've got to do the actual movements like I'm riding a wag. Those were Peter's words and I went, okay, what's a wag? <laughs> and how does a wag move? And then uh, my movements, they took it to digital and then they showed me how they were gonna actually make the wag walk to my movements. And then when I saw it, I was going, oh, wow, wicked, cool. Well, at least I'm, I know how to ride a wag. <laughs> We actually played the character in different scenes. He wanted me to play the character like, you know, funny, you know, make him clumsy, you know, enjoy it, make him really staunch at times, and just played it different ways, which where I'm riding the wag is one time we played it about five different ways. Happy, sad, funny, glad, proud. This is where um, Faramir mortally wounded, is brought back to the minister, and Denethor acts as if he had nothing to do with this, feeling terribly sorry for himself, but he's gone terribly bad by now. He needs medicine, my lord. And it's very difficult to, to walk in those costumes, let alone backwards on a lawn. And so what I did while everyone else was having lunch, I went out there and paced it out and uh, do you know how many steps I had to take in what direction? I think Denethor's a bit overwhelmed by the, the sheer size of this here. It's the size of the Cabtrol's knackers? No. <laughs> the size of the thinking. army oh, right. that he's facing here. He thinks it's all over. Yeah. You see Denethor going to self-indulgence now about his line and... You know, he has no leadership qualities left by this time, and yet he would have been a very good leader, really. By this stage, he's become mentored and self-possessed. After he's made this astounding statement, Gandalf has to come and shut him up. As I swung out of this shot, Ian whacked me. I had to turn out of it there, and then whack. Each time I saw the film in the cinema, that moment always got a bit of a cheer. Gandalf sconning my father. And Ian decided to do it very firmly and uh, came along with his own approach as to why and how, and he did it without any panic. It wasn't like Gandalf was panicking. He was really firm in his leadership. He is more snappy, more direct, and, and that certainly suits the character of Gandalf the White. And he comes back, therefore, as a more focused commander. Uh, I see him rather as a samurai in look, rather as anything else and uh, rather terse, not saying very much. Not telling people why they should do something, but just telling them to get on with it, because there was a job to be done. Yeah, Gandalf's telling them to re return fire. And all of this is all the ruins coming back at us. I'm trying to act staunch in front of all these, all my army, you know, don't be afraid. And yet, I just want them to stand there and just take it. Nice helmet, Bill. Thank you. I had no idea these sequences would look like this. You know, because like in that shot where I'm running with the rest of the soldiers, obviously the other side of the wall, there was nothing, there was a huge blue screen. 
it was all blue screen and I had to just imagine that this rock was coming towards you but then later would do the scene again like like if you freeze frame it they would put the rock in place and spit and <laughs> do the rest of the scene I love how Pete plays around with the idea of a camera floating through space instead of shooting it in the in the way that you would normally think. I think Pete's very aware of the fact that if you're going to try and film a battle scene, lots of things have already been done, so he just keeps trying to push the, the limit a little bit. It's mm -hmm. fantastic. Who knew what a Nazgul looked like back in 2001? They were riding horses in 2001. That's what the ringmates were riding. Okay, you'll be riding a Nazgul. Okay, what's a Nazgul? No one knew what anything was. When you read a book, you have your own characters in your head. But when Peter reads a book, <laughs> he's got his characters and trying to put them in your head. I'm going, what's a Nazgul? And, and all these images are going through your mind. Oh, it's this beast. On, oh, like a dragon. No, well, it's sort of like a dragon, but it's not a dragon. It's got wings. And I went, oh, okay. So I just thought of an ordinary dragon that breathes fire but I was really riding just a dolly. You notice I did get rid of my helmet in that last shot, though? Yeah. It's a lovely helmet. Uh, you know, I feel like it limits me. Performance-wise? Yes. It's a shame. It's gone. All oh, this stuff, when this was all... That would be at the top of the wall, all these polystyrene rocks, and they'd drop them off, you know, onto the stuntmen. But at one point, they wanted quite big bits. And the stunt guy said, you know, let's let's drop them first, let's see the kind of weight and force that they fall at. And unbelievable that a piece of polystyrene could seem so heavy. Mm. Good job they didn't just drop them, they killed someone. Amazing, I mean, the stunt guys. There was all these different guys with different skills. So you had Stevie, who was a wrestler, who was just quite a little guy, but just so well built. And some of the other guys, some of them who did Kung Fu, would go over and uh, train in the temples and stuff. Yeah. Just incredible, the skills these guys had. I remember when we did all these sequences, with, like, the polystyrene dropping and the Nazgul coming down, me pulling off the helmet. And I was saying to Pete, um, you know, where does this actually come? Am I... Have I been sent down here by Denethor? Or is this later on? And he said, uh, you know, it's, it's the Nazgul are all attacking. But I was saying, yeah, but have I been up? Have I seen Faramir back? And he's like, I, I, I don't actually know. I'm just going to put it in somewhere. <laughs> this is no place for a hobbit. Very near the end of filming all this stuff. Great seeing Gandalf wielding his staff. Yeah. This was actually my very, very last day of filming on everything. What, when you stabbed the guy? Yeah, all this stuff was the very last day, as I'm standing next here. And that was my very last shot. Good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, you're quite pleased with yourself there, aren't you? Well, you know, I feel as though, you know, I don't want to kill anyone. But you've done it. Well, I had to, to save a friend. That's the only reason, really, Tom. We did that all at Stone Street Studios, totally blue screen all around us. We had to just imagine all of this was happening, like all these rocks are being pelted at us. You're firing at them as well, and they're firing back. You're watching your men, but they can't break the doors to get in. So that's when I give the order to bring Grond in. There's a scene where we're just yelling out, Grond, Grond, 
grand. And we had to do that for like 10 minutes while the camera just panned through us all. And if you say grand, 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 and you've got a, you've got a mouthful of fake teeth and a lot of prosthetics on, because you had to open your mouth really, really wide to show your teeth, like the widest you can open your mouth, your mouth just gets really, really sore. <laughs> we'll see you on this too. I'll just go to the restroom while we're doing that. See you in a bit, Dom. See you. I, I won't be long, but you want a coffee or anything? No, I don't drink coffee. Are you all right then? Yeah. Right, I'll be back in a minute. See you. Let's wait. Hello and welcome back to the cast commentary of The Return of the King. You made it through part one and you've decided to venture on with us into part two. Thought we did well in the first disc. I think we can improve on the second one. I think you're right, Dom. All right, let's really try and concentrate. Okay. Here you can finally see the scene in which they actually take over the ships. That was one of the strange moments in, um, in the movie, I thought, that when the, the Corsairs arrived with the army of the dead and... Aragorn went around. How did they get onto? Yeah. Oh, oh man, was that Pete? That was Pete Jackson. who just got that then. He had another Peter shot. Peter killed by an arrow of Legolas. That's kind of cool, isn't it? That I get to kill Pete. I always spot Pete straight away in his cameos. He's just got such a physical presence and physicality about him. You know. Let's put it this way: it's not often you manage to get to kill your director, is it? <laughs> <laughs> this scene was created entirely in the motion capture studio. Well, obviously not the Elijah part, but certainly my part in this. Great moment for Gollum as he is sort of using his manipulative tools. And here, it's like Smeagol's crowning moment of achievement in terms of carrying out the plan. Way. There you see a very brief glimpse of Smeagol panicking and Gollum taking over because Smeagol really begins to wimp out at that point because it's not going to work. I always feel sorry for Andy because anytime he meets anyone new, he has to do the voice yeah. to show he's Gollum, which is... I think at some point he's going to say, actually give, yeah, give a, a kind of press day and say after... Whatever it might be, say March the 12th. Yeah. I will never do the voice again. Right. Except for perhaps maybe for, um, you know, charity purposes. Or maybe for the movie Gollum. <laughs> Revenge. Yeah. There's a sense that uh, you don't know where Smeagol is, Smeagol and Gollum is at this point. We hear him saying this way, this way, and eventually silence. It's really hard <laughs> trying to create distance as an actor in an ADR stage. When you're trying to throw your voice, when you're trying to... Uh, you, you sort of want to project, but it wasn't right to project, but I was trying to... I was trying to do the sound effect rather than... <laughs> rather than be Smeagol shouting. I was trying to create the effect of Smeagol shouting from different... Just watching these shots in the ADR, on the ADR stage. It took me quite a long time to actually get just those offlines, which is strange when you think about, you know, lip-syncing being difficult. It was creating the offlines was actually more difficult. I've actually been in films where there was a different type of web or a different technology to 
create the web. It wasn't nearly as um, rubbery. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It wasn't as um, elastic. Elastic, good, wet, as well, because this was quite moist. You also spray it down, and it would it would retain moisture. I'm looking for a word with the letter P, like pungy or something. <laughs> no, pungy? Pun? No, not a word. <laughs> <laughs> it is now. The uh, Sean dictionary. I love that uh, stunt. I think is incredible. The fact that the camera's leaning right out over the shoulder, over the stuntman's shoulder, did Sam's fall there. Steve Reinsfeld. That. Wait, what a spill. Right Whoa. there, that's Steve. Is it? Yeah. Oh. That's Steve, oh. and he really fell long and far. And actually, if you freeze frame it on the wide shot of the falling, you can actually see his face. That moment with uh, the Lembus bread and realizing what Gollum has done was kind of a hard moment for me because in my mind, like, I think so quickly about a lot of different things, just Sean does, that Sam... Peter really wanted was this sort of slow burn of realization as he discovers the bread and realizes what. So, but it felt like a throwback to 50s kind of movie acting. You know, the sort of like, oh, I know what's happening. Yeah. So it was really, I, I, we did a lot of takes of it, and I, I remember just feeling like. You just have a, to dumb yourself down. I just feel like such a boob. Because, you know, Sam's not, Sam's a little, little dense. A little slower. A little slower. Dense. Well, maybe not. You dense. heard it here first, folks. Sorry, Sam's not dense. I didn't mean that. He didn't go listen to that dumb creature walk into the cave with a spider. It's very true. Did you ever visit this set? No, I didn't. I didn't either. I'd like to. Yeah, I think Elijah had a few highly stressful days of just being wrapped up in sticky, horrible stuff. Yeah. Terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Oh. Yeah, there's a lot of scuttling going on there, Dom. Yeah. That spider is the most realistic giant spider I've ever seen on screen, hands down. Pete's scared of spiders, isn't he? Obviously, uh, Peter's revenge on the spiders that he hates so much. The comment that Pete made about spiders that he liked, which I think he does put into Shelob quite a lot, is the thing that scared him the most about spiders is that they move very quick and then they stop. Then they move and then they stop. Then they move and then they stop. They don't do that kind of... It's mm. not the tarantula-type movement that he's scared of, this kind of slow, lackadaisical thing. It's the scuttle and then the immediate freeze that scares him. But um, he's very squeamish of spiders. So I'm sure this sequence was fun for him. How'd they stick him up, though? I don't know. I'll let Elijah answer that question. Elijah, how did this take you up there? Well, I'm actually, um, I'm not hanging up by sheer strength of the web. <laughs> They've got me on a, on a harness, and each of my arms has a band around it that has a wire connected to it to hold me up. Now, this is Smeagol so thrilled, so delighted, so excited that he can't stop himself singing. We tried it in, in lots of different ways, ranging from operatic to burlesque. And then it goes horribly wrong for him. He suddenly realizes he's got to get out. The web, like you really look like you're stuck at like And it is, stuff. it is truly honestly sticky as well. So it's, it was not something I had to fake. It's very difficult to kind of get all that stuff to break through it and get it off of you. 
all of the fighting in this particular scene was shot with me and Andy. This was shot again using motion capture on set, which is a very difficult thing to do when you're doing a fight because the suit can get torn to pieces and all the dots can come flying off and then the data gets ruined and then you have to reshoot it. And it was very brutal, this fight, and we really laid into each other, as you can see. I can't remember if I did a pass without... I did do a pass without him, but we did do each shot. We would do multiple takes with Andy where we would be fighting each other and then we would do a couple of passes where I would be uh, fighting thin air. But there's that kind of muscle memory that comes into it. And we'd motion capture this. We'd shot all this scene, but there was this one beat which Pete and Fran really decided that we needed, which is kind of around now. When I went in to do my ADR in London, Pete said, right, get down on the floor. It was in the carpet at his home where he was staying in London, and I want to shoot this connective scene where, where Smeagol all, almost for a moment sees life without the ring and the pressure of that and the burden of it before Gollum takes over. It's this moment now. Just that little shot. That was the last thing I ever filmed on Lord of the Rings, and it was on Peter Jackson's carpet in his house in London. And that day, he cut it immediately into the movie and uh, emailed it over to New Zealand. And that afternoon, I was doing the voice for that shot. And it really represents the kind of high-tech, low-tech marriage <laughs> for me of, of what the entire filmmaking experience was about and the perfection that he was after, that even at that point, weeks before delivery of the film, you're still searching for a moment that is going to make the scene better. And it's such a rare, rare thing to work with someone who's prepared to do that. And, and also has got the guts to do it and, and wants to do it at that stage after having worked on these productions for such a long time. Reconnect him with Galadriel, I think, is nice, too. Yeah. I sort of see Galadriel as, in some ways, his guardian angel or a bit of a guide, you know. But there is something really ambiguous about Galadriel that's something slightly frightening about her as well. This task was appointed to you. Galadriel's my grandmother, <laughs> which seems impossible to believe because she's so young and gorgeous. <laughs> no one will. I was so excited when I heard that Kate was going to be a part of this film because she's just absolutely my favorite actress, and I think she's so talented. And um, as a matter of fact, when she came to set to film, I would go and just sort of creep up and spy on her and watch her while she was filming, because I was so intrigued by how she worked. So this bit here was one of the more difficult bits of riding. It looks pretty simple, but the ground is very uneven and the path was very tricky, full of rabbit holes and rocks. For the scene, that Pace wanted to be as urgent as possible as Aemer comes to report the state of Gondor to Theoden. Time is against us. Make ready! They're in a hidden part of the uh, encampment. Otherwise, Theoden would have seen them and sent them home where they should be. <laughs> yeah, she looks pretty conspicuous standing right there in the middle of everyone. Uh, <laughs> she's not supposed to be there. don't really know why this wasn't kept in the theatrical release, this would probably be the, the scene I was the most disappointed about losing. Said that about the last one? Mm, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, it was a nice moment for them to kind of build their relationship and story-wise, what was making them go. You know, it just adds, 
add some nice layering on the relationship of Mary and Eowyn. He's very fond of Eowyn. I think he feels very connected to her in the way that he feels sorry that she's not being really given the opportunity to prove her worth the same way that he isn't. I wish I could see them again. A lovely scene, that. Mm. I hadn't seen it before. Beautifully played, Dom. Oh, stunning work. No, it really was. Yeah. Make haste. We ride through the night. That says, we will ride through the night, that trumpet sound. It's kind of code. It's Rohan trumpet code. Can you hear it? We will ride through the night. We will ride through the night. Oh, those bloody helmets. Those helmets. I always felt like such a moron by the time I put that helmet on. I looked like an egghead. Flaming balls. <laughs> you know, ultimately what... <laughs> you know what I love about Grand, that battering ram thing? Yeah. Is that when they, they show the cave trolls, I remember in The Fellowship, one cave troll was like the signature thing in the movie. Now you see like a baker's dozen of them and you don't even think twice about it. And just the sheer physics of them pulling on the rope and using the levers of to have that thing pulled back. I mean, it just, it has such weight to it, physical weight. I mean, you just can imagine being a human being standing next to that oh, towering yeah. thing battering into the door. It just, it's one hell of a battering ram. Well, this is new. Talk us through this, Bill. Okay. This was, um... Gandalf has told Pippin to go up, get himself out of danger. But he knows that Denethor's gone slightly mad. Cuckoo. He's lost it. This puppy's gone. Denethor, hello. What's going on with you? He's thinking here. Here you go. What's he up to? Again, filmed in that set, just outside Wellington. Oh, you see? A flower is blooming. On the dead tree. So what does that mean? Does that mean that the tide is changing? Hope. Yeah, what, what are you hoping that it means? <laughs> there is hope now. Oh, there is hope? Yeah. That's good. Until uh -oh. someone walks past and picks it off and puts it in their hair. Better to die sooner than late. Probably the most challenging thing, and sort of unfair thing in a way, was doing ADR three years after I'd done the performance because normally one would do it within a month or two while it's still fresh, which uh, meant that, you know, I had to revisit those emotions again. And because I was probably in another mode, I actually pushed my voice too hard and lost it for a day. Whereas when you're in the mode of playing the character, that wouldn't happen. And there was tremendous pressure around at that stage to get the film finished. Bring wood and oil. How do they do that sound, man? Grand. Oh, gosh, that thing is so amazing. At that time, we didn't know who Grand was or what Grand was. And then I found out later on that, that it's this huge, really huge battering ram. Huge wolf's head. I think it was out of um, iron to bring the, the actual doors down so we can get in and crush them. Boom. I love the trolls. See, even Gandalf's shocked by that. Well, yeah. Minas Tirith was built in exactly the same place as Helm's Deep was. And both me and Dom never worked in Helm's Deep, but we did visit it just to see, you know, what it was like. So everyone was saying how, how close it was to Helm with the, all the battles and stuff. So we went up and, and had a look one night. 
And it was quite funny to go back up and this same place was a completely different set. That is right out of Alan Lee's drawing, that, that image right there. Sure is. She loved behind you. I love how Alan Lee's work was oftentimes copied directly onto screen, which is wonderful, because it is such wonderful work <laughs> that people are so familiar with. There was something of a puzzle in the way that these movies were shot. There were just little pieces of the puzzle that were being, you know, little moments here, little moments there. And I really enjoyed that as an actor, because then you could really commit as opposed to committing to, to a whole, oftentimes you were called on to commit to a moment and make that moment perfect, and I really enjoyed that. Every time I watched this in the cinema, there was always a gasp. Great audience moment. I mean, the audience is just terrified now. I love how this thing is slightly wet. <laughs> and when this thing goes into you, I remember watching it for the first time on the looping stage in London and just being... Just that knowing that. It really hurt, too. I know, man. Did it actually, did it hit your spinal cord, or did it stop just short of there? It just short of the spinal cord. But it short, they had to shorten it, though, because they realized that it was too long. It was too long. I spent mm. a couple of days in the hospital after that, but it was worth it, as you can see. I know, we told everybody that it was appendicitis, but... That was the excuse. Maybe that's what caused your appendicitis. One of my favorite key sequences in the book... Sam fighting Shilob. Mm. Very graphic. I think something that Pete really enjoyed getting his getting his teeth into. This once again would be would be horrible for Sean Astin to film because obviously, you know, she's not there. I'm sure Sean will take you through that. On you go, Sean. Well, it was just my imagination, really. I mean, uh, there was no. There was no shield. They had a, a big plastic spider that they tried to do for one shot. It was just terrible. It didn't work. So we just went to total CG. I mark. got a plastic leg at one point. Yeah. But, which I uh, don't even know if, it, if it's in the film. And when we were doing one of the reshoots, I was always really proud of the fact that I could see the spider in my imagination just based on... I finally was getting to do a, a really heroic fight scene. You know, it was... It wasn't, a, it wasn't Aragorn, it wasn't Legolas, it was like little Sam gets to fight the big spider. And I'd been waiting for that moment for for so long to be able to shoot that fight sequence and uh, with the spider. And, and all I had to do, you know, they, they'd say where my eyeline was supposed to be for it. And when we would click into the drama, I could just do it. I could turn and, wow, ah, there she was. And I could, I could muster all the requisite fear and anger and hatred and violence and everything else. And... And then we went back, I remember, in August or July or August of, of 2003, months before the film's going to hit the theaters, and we at, we were doing a, a scene where I, a couple of reaction shots to Shelob, and I, I, I couldn't see the spider anymore. <laughs> I was like, I would turn and I would look, and I just sort of, like, I wasn't in it. And I thought, I'm a bad actor. <laughs> I can't do it anymore. I can't see the spider. Because I'd already seen this a version of the sequence cut together, and it was so good that uh, I, I just... That's so, probably it. You'd seen a bit of it. I had seen it. And it yep. just, I was just too exhausted. I just couldn't do it anymore. And, and I did it. I mean, I remember punching myself in the stomach and slapping myself in the face and doing that barking thing that I used to do. <laughs> yeah, kind of like that. <laughs> just you, knew, you knew Sean was on set when, <laughs> when the bark. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I did that to try and uh, wake myself up and, and do it. And finally did it. But it was a moment of crisis and self-doubt because I couldn't, I couldn't see the spider anymore. <laughs> oh, man. There's a metaphor. Very difficult for an actor to sit and not blink. 
for a long, long time. He's very good at it, Elijah. I guess I have a bit of a reputation for my ability to do, to stare. One of the theories that Billy and I came upon was that because Elijah wears contact lenses, we thought that maybe in the early part of his life, he kept his eyes wide open, straining to see what was going on, that they just stayed like that. Don't go where I go, follow. This was my audition scene. Really? Don't go, Mr. Frodo, don't go where I can follow. I remember feeling like, oh, geez, it was too melodramatic or it was too... When we were shooting it, I remember thinking... No, not at all. No, Look I know, not, not in the context of the movie, but I remember feeling a little bit like well, the I weight think... of the movie sort of transferred to me for a moment. Well, I think that there were times in which all of us felt that way because of the nature of how the movies were shot. So suddenly we'd come to a moment that was so intense and so dramatic and you weren't always able to lock into the context of where it would fit. And suddenly you'd find yourself, you know, feeling slightly overdramatic and too much. And I, I know what you're saying, totally. It's, kind of, it's an interesting plot moment, like, Shelob's killed you, I think you're dead. There were a lot of different ways that it was handled in the adaptation, in the screenplay adaptation, and then I think they were still finding their way of mechanically, just structurally, how does Sam know when Frodo's gone? You know, how and those little reaction shots, I, I sort of felt were kind of after the fact or something. Maybe they weren't, maybe they, they were always in there. And I, I do that a lot sometimes. I'll, I'll forget what's in the screenplay, and, and then when we're shooting it, it feels like a totally new thought to me or something, but those moments felt a little bit awkward for me because I just sort of thought, boy, I'm, I'm, I'm just giving important expository information to the audience about how Sam does stuff. It didn't, it felt like I was, I was needing to vocalize things. If it were real, if it, wouldn't, if it weren't drama, you'd just, you'd see it and you'd have that realization, but to actually say it out loud feels like you're doing it for the audience's benefit to get them to understand both for themselves and for you what your thought process is. It just felt a little, a little clunky there. Peter's very respectful to actors. He would assume that we would do what we were paid to do and um, and bring something to it. And he would, at the beginning, on the block through, talk about the scene, but uh, we didn't have the liberty of having rehearsals anywhere else beforehand. We just jumped in and it was always fine. And we, we saw eye to eye. With so much on his mind, he had to trust the actors to bring their material to the set which they always did. That was tall Paul pulling me out there. Right. And then this shot here, that's Fawn who gets thrown out, and I was just lying underneath the camera. So when she rolled, she kind of hit my back, and then I would sit up. It's a very kind of low-tech way of doing it, but actually quite hard, because if she rolled and the wrong part of her was kind of hitting my back, like her back hit my back. When I popped up, it just looked really comic. Yeah. And it just happened, this one take, that it just worked, worked kind of perfectly. Because we didn't think, well, we thought we'd try it a couple of times, and if it doesn't work, we'll try something else. It just seemed to work. Well, congratulations to you and Fon. And also Pete. Because we had been on it for so long, you could just tell these certain characteristics of a lot of the people under the prosthetics. That's Joel all over. I can tell which one's Pete, which one's Robert Pollock. You just say it by name, but all the other cast and crew couldn't... Now, who's under there? Now, who's that? Now, who's this? Every time you'd eat, your makeup artist will be watching you like a hawk. Because when you eat, all the prosthetics that's around your mouth would start really giving way because of the moisture. 
and mixing them with the glue, it really just loosens up the prosthetics and it starts to peel away. Because I'll be eating, enjoying like a chicken leg or something like that, or spare ribs or something like that. And you know how you eat spare ribs. Well, I couldn't eat them. I had to eat my spare ribs with a knife and a fork and cut it up nice and finely and just dish it into my mouth. Because my makeup artist would have one eye on me and one eye on his own food. And in this shot here, I stood on a sort of catapult thing. And then when Gandalf grabbed my hand, they fired this catapult so that I shot up in the air. Nice. Yeah. It was kind of scary because you thought, if I miss it, you know, it just might fire me anywhere. And when I did this scene, I was actually on the horse with Ian. We just made it work. You know, just hunkered way down. Do you not know Dan? No. Not a lot of people know this. What? But the voice of the Witch King was done by Andy Serkis. Was it Regis? I didn't even know that. No, he kept it very quiet. I did, actually. Um, yes, I did. Smeagol, go on, thank you. Um, what we tried to do with the Witch King was, in fact, to have this sense of this being a void in his face, that there was, there was, there was an in-and-out breath that was... That there was reverberating around this hollow skull, this hollow shell inside this helmet. So we worked very hard, and I think when I was trying to create the voice, which was in in the ADR sessions, we recorded level. Fran had this idea of recording levels, layers and layers and layers of me doing that. So I'd be doing breathing in and out at the same time as speaking, which was then layered on top of each other. But this idea, I suppose, of taking head-on, improbable odds is, is probably something that we... I mean, maybe we still do today, but it's something that probably comes from chivalrous times past, and probably Tolkien's experience in the First World War coloured his, uh, coloured his decision to write this the way he wrote it. See, the helmet doesn't suit Bernard either. <laughs> Actually, the only really good helmet wearer in this movie is Carl. He wears the helmet really well. Really? I thought I looked circumcised in my helmet. I loved my helmet, though. wouldn't trade it for the world. In fact, they gave it to me at the end. Most people's helmets look quite cool. Yeah. Maybe not Miranda's. No. Helmets are just really hard, I think, for girls to wear well. And uh, we actually went back and redesigned the helmet a little bit when we went back for the reshoots, because mine was just so big, it made my head look about five inches taller than what it already was, so I had this big egg head. And then putting them on, the eyes always go off-centre and drags your wig off, and, oh, the helmets are a drag. The scene, the Ride of the Rohirrim, is a, it was a very special scene for me because all this thing with the clattering of the spears was all my idea right from the very beginning. And then I realised I couldn't do it if they'd asked me to do it the next day, so I upgraded myself as a rider. Bernard was telling me that he trained a lot for this horse stuff. And the way Pete set it up, the idea of the spears and the sword down the spears, and, and I'm left-handed. And I'd always had it in my head that I would ride up and down left-handed. My scabbard was on my right hip. So I had to ride down to the end of the line and pull the horse who was all pumped up, rein him in, try and calm him down enough for me to get my sword out with my left hand, change the sword from my left hand to my right hand and the reins from my right hand to my left hand. And anyone who's been anywhere near a horse or knows anything about leather realises that with thick gloves on, that is not an easy thing to do. This is all me. This is no stuntman in here at all. I did the whole lot. A combination of my idea and my determination to be the rider that could do it. Bernard's sword was pretty bent at the end of it. <laughs> it was only an aluminium sword. <laughs> he 
can get to the end of it and have to spend a couple of minutes straightening the sword for each tag. Because this, we'd, we'd use kind of lightweight aluminium swords for some of this stuff, there was no way that I could clatter my sword down a whole load of real wooden spears and it not end up being bent like some kind of improbable piece of armoury. So we had to use the hero sword in my weaker hand and that was really quite hard. Just added one more added difficulty for the whole day. But we did it. Paid off. It was a pretty amazing experience to um, be on set, just be part of this massive charge, and the ground was shaking and just the most thunderous charge. I, I remember at one point I was at the end of the field watching one of the takes, and the ground was literally shaking at these 500-odd horses galloping down the field. How many horses do you think were there, Dom? There was actual uh, real ones. Well, I remember speaking to Pete, and he said he could. He gave me a ballpark figure. He didn't know exactly, but he said it was at least eleven. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's seven now. And then he four of them just went. <laughs> oh, three left. <laughs> All the rest are computer generated. <laughs> On any given day, he said there was at least eleven. To have eleven horses live and all running in the same direction on the set is an incredible achievement. There. Yeah. Thankfully, the cameraman caught it. I'd been rehearsing, a, trying to look for some piece of action that I could do for Aima when he was riding, charging into battle, so I would rehearse getting my spear and flicking it up without looking at it. It would spin in the air, and then I could catch it, and then it would shift it from riding position to throwing position. It, it took months and months of practice time. I guess that's, you know, one of the great things about this film is they actually allowed us to do as much as we felt comfortable doing. So if you invested time and energy into perfecting your, your skills, your sword fighting, your horse riding, you consequently you, you got to do a lot. This is interesting. People often ask me, what was that? I know that our department had found a, a combination of glycerin and some other things that was um, looked effective but wasn't toxic. So that's what I on myself. Interesting thing about this scene, we had to get it in one because I'd basically covered me and my wig and my costume and oil. If we'd had to do it again, I would have had to go home and I'd have to go out and wash the wig and the, but we didn't have to. There's a huge feeling of excitement on the set that day because that's, that's a really dangerous stunt and, uh, you know, so there was a tension and excitement. And when he pulled it off and got it right, there was such elation, high fives everywhere, and and the team that had been assembled was—they were all there to support him on that day, all of these stunt buddies. It was very exciting. And this is probably my my favourite moment of yours in the in the film. That bit right there. Right. I remember thinking, it's my mate, huh? Kind of really grows up there, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Were you pushing tall Paul there? Yes, and then there was actually some shots which get cut out where I'm actually really going at Dennis or punching him and when he grabs hold of me there, and that was a stuntman who was set on fire. And then I had to grab him and I was punching him and stuff. And I think Philip has said they cut that out because they didn't want to see a hobbit doing that sort of violence, you know? Right, right. Especially to not an orc. Yeah. But that, that was so much fun to film because there was people around with their... Uh, fire extinguishers and I had to put stuff on my eyebrows to make sure they didn't go on fire because there was just fire everywhere. Now here's Denethor, watch this now. He goes out the door now, he's got about 300 yards to run and there he is. 
And this is another thing I said with Peter. I said, he's a must be a hell of a fast runner. I said, well, I suppose you would do if you are on fire. He said, well, I got this image of him, and he gets halfway down, he thinks, my parachute, and he pulls the cord to the parachute, and the parachute lights, and, of course, the flames then burn the parachute. <laughs> Denethor's doomed. Wonderful idea of this flaming person with a flaming parachute behind him. I think the fight sequences were definitely the uh, most physically challenging and exhausting aspect of the whole production, for me anyway. Because, you know, you're fighting under a ton of armour and you're doing multiple takes. Oh, now what's this? What the F are these? Come on, Michael. I think these guys are probably the coolest bad guys in the entire trilogy. The tattoos and the face painting and all that kind of stuff. Now, what would you do, really? You'd say, okay, fine, game's up, okay, it's 1-0. But what does Theoden do? He says, come on, chaps, let's take them on. That's it, great, let's just tackle these elephants head on. It's a brilliant piece of theatre, that, isn't it, really? You've got this improbable situation, a load of horses, and these giant mummerkill with barbed wire between the tusks, and they just says, come on, guys, let's go get them. Brilliant. Just a wonderful bit of theatrical filming. I got off to a bad start, actually, with this lead mama kill here, cos uh, first day I met him, I showed him a mouse, and he's terrified. Mama kills don't like mice. Oh, they don't. I realised that was his Achilles heel. We did a lot, an awful lot of this, riding around, swerving away from nothing, on the lawn in the ex-paint factory in Wellington. Swerving around. Dodging God knows what with Pete trying to describe what the mummikill looked like. <laughs> they get you to stand in front of a green screen and they put a bow in your hand and they say, okay, fire erratically, and then they put a spear in your hand, okay, throw a few spears. And uh, some of it's like that, and then some of it's more specific. I mean, at the end, we're really just trying to grab what we could, and you, know, you only need a couple of seconds of great footage, that's all it takes. You'd get home at the end of the day and Literally, there wouldn't be a part of your body that didn't ache. You wouldn't even have energy to uh, <laughs> go out to dinner or make dinner. I mean, you would just collapse at the end of the day. great thing about battle sequences now is that because there's so many battle sequences in films, you have to keep setting a new level of, of quality, you know, and that's what Pete's done again is, is said to people, if, you, if, you, if you're going to do battle sequences, this is the standard that people now expect, which is great. Now, this is some spear-throwing. This is... Olympic standard javelin chucking, really, this is. So uh, what happens there? He kind of gives the mama kill a piercing. No, he's um, deering the mama kill. Ah. And he does it by pulling its ears, which are attached to sort of ropes and then to earrings. So when he falls, he pulls it completely on the left, which, you know, if somebody pulls your ear really hard on the left, you go left. This would all be green screen work right here, all the stuff of us stabbing left and right. Yeah, that's tough. Oh, gosh, we were in the studio all day doing that, trying to slash, pretending to slash at elephants' legs that weren't there and throw spears and sit on this horse. By the time we went back for the shoot reshoots, I had to shoot a lot of my stuff on the, on the phony pony. They made a whole a horse, like mechanical horse, for us to work on. Just two or three hours of me and Miranda sat on the horse and they just say, action, and 
you'd go for as long as you can, just stabbing in lots of different directions, and then they'd add all the stuff later. Whoa. I actually did do some stuff with Miranda, uh, me and Miranda on the same horse, because Pete said when, it, when you got close up, you really couldn't tell the difference. It was difficult kind of taxing stuff, because you don't really know what you're doing. Pete filled us in, but mm -hmm. I think this Mama Kill was supposedly at the time, and I think it might still be the biggest, the biggest prop ever built. Yeah, that's right. Now, is that a recognition shot of Bernard C. Miranda, yeah? I would think so, yeah. Well, this is... Nice, Marion Battle, check it out. This was all shot in uh, the reshoots. I'd said to a long time to Pete that I'd, I would have really liked to have done some battle sequences as Mary, just to show how horrifying it's going to be for a hobbit to be at the very centre of battle. I watched Miranda do this, some of this stuff. She just wore herself out doing that. You can see at the end of every take, she'd get more and more tired and fall over more and more quickly at the end of every take. And then afterwards, I was absolutely bruised all over my body and my neck was out in three places and my back was out. And the next day, luckily, I didn't have to shoot because it rained, but I don't think I would have been able to shoot again the next day. I was in such a mess. I didn't think it would end this way. This is a lovely scene between Ian and Billy. Now the journey doesn't end here. Splendid words to say, and I suppose touching that, that Gandalf should choose to say them as words of comfort to a, a young man. Uh, I suppose in different circumstances, I, I might have wanted to put a, a rather cynical edge on the scene, because uh, what right has a commander who's, who's, who's got his troops into this particular problem, to be telling them how wonderful it's going to be when we're dead, Whites. you know? Uh, that's what commanders have been saying to the troops through the generations. Working with Ian was um, pretty special. He's a bit of a legend in, in British theatre, and, and I've worked quite a bit in British theatre as well, and we kind of approached the scenes the same way you would in the theatre, where, you know, we'd talk through it and... Pete was very up for that. He's a very giving actor. He, you know, when you look in his eyes, you get a lot back. You know, you, you can ask for nothing more. Uh, so I, I, I had a fantastic time working with Ian. Learned a lot. This is another place at Queen Elizabeth Park. And I don't know what this thing looks like. It was never adequately described to us what it looked like. Uh-oh. My school didn't want to do it that day. Just threw us along the ground, you know. You can't get good Nazgul at all these days. They don't do what you tell them. The Nazgul's one of those creatures, actually, that turned out exactly how I thought it would. That's exactly the picture I had of it in my mind from reading the book. I had no idea what we were looking at here. Not a clue. And there's a terrible scene, terrible moment, when she kind of runs towards the Nazgul to defend her uncle and stands on the horse. <laughs> if things weren't bad enough, she stands on the horse and adds her weight to the pressure on my broken body. I think they cut that out, but we did it. When we were rehearsing, we were rehearsing like gym gears, but there she's got all this chain mail on that she didn't really cater for. And with all these chopping and stuff, it really takes a lot out of you. I was fine with, with my costume, but with all that chain mail, there's a scene further on where I have to just keep using the Morning Star and just keep on whacking it at her to get that reaction from her as this mace is coming down and about to smash her, because that's what Peter wanted, get that close-up reaction of her 
reacting to it, then moving, not wait for a beat, then move, get the reaction, then move. And I had to just keep on doing it, just keep on doing it. And I went for about like five minutes straight and she had just had to move. I come in again, she had to move from that spot, I had to come in again, move from that spot. And I was going, oh mate, and I could see it in her face that it was really frustrating for her. And I was going, Pete, cut, cut, <laughs> cut, say cut, because this is really wearing her out. And she had to move off the ground. It's, it's, yeah, it's not an easy thing to do, especially when you're all that chain mail. I don't think I was there when they shot the Corso sequence, because they did some in pickups. And what I noticed where we hop off the boats, it was a digital double for my jump off the boat, because I didn't do that. I would remember that. That's kind of weird when you see that, you know, because you, you always know, if I'd been there, there would have been a great moment to play. But you can't always get everywhere, so. Yeah, you're all full of confidence, aren't you, Aragorn, just because you've got 15 million dead people behind you. Yes. I love the army of the dead. It's such a great idea. Yeah, this scene I had to slowly pick her up and it was really hard with that glove to try and get a bit on her neck because her buckle underneath her chin kept on getting in my way. And I'm just trying to grab her skin. Yeah, that was that helmet and everything that was around her. I couldn't get a good grip. <laughs> now she had to wear that helmet for all that time just so she could whip it off and make that moment dramatic. <laughs> I am no man. In this scene, Peter, you know, as soon as you get stabbed, there's this initial shock to the actual stabbing. So I just want you to be shocked at first. We'll play it again, and she'll stab you again. And then there's the shock. Then there's the shake. There's the shiver. There's the shimmy. And then you're starting to crumple and just slowly dissipate in the end. And then another loud roar from the crowd. <laughs> when the bad guy dies, there's always that big cheer. I don't. You've got to love the bad guys. Yeah. Now that's a bad hair day. They just keep mucking up the hair more and more. And it's not going to match with the hair later on. Oh, that's right. We just dragged myself along the ground all day on that one. I think they're trying to make my hair really messy so, so Aragorn wouldn't see my face and he wouldn't know that it was me. Vigo's the best fighter of all, though, of course. He just has such a great style. So fluid. Get it, Miranda, get it. Get it. Oh, God. You'll never make it. Oh. Ah, I never got to see that before. So that's where Aragorn killed him. Orlando practiced for this sequence by climbing animals in his downtime. We'd be off surfing. Orlando would climb ponies, horses, cows, yeah. mules, donkeys. But before tigers. he got to animals like that, he was on gerbils, hamsters, and remember uh, the time when the rat bit him? Bit him right in these. <laughs> he couldn't go out for days. <laughs> they had built in one of the studios a huge pile of sandbags which were kind of basically the, the back end of the mama kill. And they got arrows in it that I had to climb up. And there was a piece up on top where the stunt guys were all gathered, ready to fight me. And there were wires running around it. And I was swinging, you know, so that it was like when I was swinging down the side of the leg, they had the option to use parts of my shot there. I know they basically used a lot of my digital double, so I had to have a very serious conversation with my digital double and make sure I knew exactly what his motivation was. 
It was great to have that moment, you know. That face that he pulls there, he actually pulls when he sees a girl that he fancies. It's kind of his sexy face. Look, yeah, this, like this here. You know, that kind of... Huh. That still only counts as one. <laughs> Very popular, that line. I get asked to write that on people's autographs all the time. I think it's probably something that I'd improvise and Peter liked and... Uh, you know, I'd probably improvise a dozen different variants of it. Then he turned around and said, oh, you got to do that one, that's the one we really like. And there they go. It reminds me of, you know, when you, um, when you put that stuff down the toilet and it cleans off all the lime scale? It's kind of like that, isn't it, really? Everything comes out shiny and clean. Now, this is the, the scene we did at Queen Elizabeth Park, and then when we did the reshoot, I'd done my bit and I got my and my farewell party and all that kind of stuff. And then Miranda said, I don't think you're finished. I think we're going to do your death scene again. And I said, no, get out of here. I'm going on holiday. I'm going down the South Island. And she said, well, you better check out before you go. I actually got wrapped and was told I was going home. And then I said to Bernard, were we going to shoot that scene again or not? You know, should we go back and ask them? So I went to ask and then they actually pulled us back and we ended up doing it. But there was a lot of indecision about whether we should do it or not. Because Pete, I think, was was pretty happy with it, the original one, but Philippa and Fran felt like it could be better. And Philippa Boyne said, because you two have developed so much as actors and as a partnership, and because you're good friends and so on, and we think we can write it better, and we think you can act it better, we can think we can shoot it better, so we're going to do it again. And the whole idea, I think, that they wanted to get in the scene was that, that he was the one telling her that she had to accept it, that she couldn't fight it. They wanted to get that across, that, that the person who was dying was actually saying that you have to let me go, and that that is something that quite often happens in life, that it's the people who are living who can't accept that someone will die, and the person who's dying who's, who is more ready and able to accept it. The death scene was very appropriately the last scene that I shot on Lord of the Rings, and very appropriately, it was with Miranda, because I'd done, I think, very, some very significant work with her. And she with me, I hope she feels that way. So to have that as my very last piece of work on it, apart from the occasional voice work and, and uh, commentary like this, it was essentially my last piece of acting, live acting on the whole experience. Love Menace Terrace, I just love looking at it. Yeah, you've said that. Well, I still like it. And I remember uh, Pete was saying, you know, there's all these ghosts, you haven't seen them before. You're amazed. <laughs> and he talked me through it. Am I right? I'm amazed. But you're also a little bit scared. Scared amazement? Yeah. It's one of your easiest faces to pull, isn't it? Yeah, I got that in one take. Yeah. Bad idea. Very handy in a tight spot, these lads. Despite the fact they're dead. Peter always, um, always had a core of stuff that he need he wanted me to do as written, as agreed, and all that. And then... He was always very keen for me to improvise a little bit because sometimes I would improvise something and it coincided with what he was trying to do and, and, and he would utilise it. What I found confusing is why did they let them go, all the dead people? So why did they wait till the job was over? And where do they go now? Do they just... Well, they can go now and uh, relax. They don't go have to rest. go back to that bad place. Go and watch ESPN Sports Centre. I'm looking for you, Dom. What have you found? <gasps> you found... Look at all the death and... Is that my cloak? Yeah. Do you know what? I actually asked for that. 
because originally I was supposed to find your sword. And I said, how would I know it was his sword? And they said, well, it's smaller. I thought, well, I just think it was a dagger. So we worked out that, yeah, the cloak would be a better thing. Oh, this is back in. Oh, yeah, I was disappointed for Carla that wasn't in the movie. I thought he did that really well. You can't prepare for something like that. You go in there and put yourself in that situation. And how I would feel if the last surviving member of my family was laying dead, well, at least if I thought they were dead, lying before me. I mean, just a raw outpouring of grief. It's just raw. I did about three or four takes, I think, and that was it. Uh-huh. I'm actually meant to have the black breath here as well, but um, that's a hard concept to kind of get across, so... It's not really about the uh, arm, it's more about, um, I suppose, an internal ailment. I was doing ADR, and they were about to shoot the Houses of the Healing, and my character wasn't actually in the scene, and I said to Philippa, I said, look, after that sort of massive display of grief and anguish, don't you find it odd that he's not by her side? And she said, well, yeah, it is a bit. Let me talk to Pete. And so she went away and talked to Peter and then uh, got a call from them that night saying, yeah, we're shooting the House of the Healing tomorrow. We thought we think you should, uh, you should be there. That's, that's how come I'm in this scene. I'd done a radio play with Miranda about 10 years before. This was in the days when they actually did radio plays in Australia. But there was one particular sequence where we had to have sex in a bath and they actually had a bath in the studio with the microphones in the bath and the two of us standing in the bath pretending to have sex but Miranda, Miranda and I just couldn't contain ourselves so laughed for a little bit too long for the director who got rather annoyed with us both. But um, after that this was the next time I saw Miranda in the Houses of Healing on my very first day on Lord of the Rings. Mary! Oh, right. So showing the passage of time. You've been looking for me all day. Yeah, not so much I like you. In real life, I'd have looked for about mm, an hour and a half. Yeah. Just call me on my cell phone. Yeah. In principle photography, we actually shot this in a different way. We shot a sequence of Mary kind of stumbling around, still semi-conscious, and, and Pippin coming over, and he... He kind of puts his arm around him and takes him off camera, but Pete, I think, wanted Mary to be still in a bad state and for it to be very clear to the audience that, that Pippin is, is taking care of him, so that's yeah. why we refilmed it. And it's, it's pretty clear as well, I think, that you would have died if, if Pippin hadn't have came. Yeah. You know, no one would have looked underneath that. Yeah. It's a great scene. It's truncated in the theatrical. Is that an elephant joke? <laughs> truncated. Yeah. It's nice to see Dom have so much put back in. Oh, it is. It's part of being an actor that you you pour your heart and soul into a, into a role and into a project, and when it, it finally sees its release, there's always a sense of disappointment because not everything that you did, not every moment that you played, every single outpouring of your heart is not going to necessarily be present. And It's a pretty rare thing when the emotional return on your creative investment, you know, seems worth it. I, you know, I've certainly felt above and beyond the returns of my investment in terms of my time and energy and emotional commitment and everything else. I think. But, I mean, there were, there were certainly scenes in, in all three of the movies that I had fallen in love with and moments that I really enjoyed filming and in terms of the context of the story that I really appreciated. But I got attached to different versions of things that I would see edited yes. that then would change as a function of yes. special effects or Howard's music or whatever, and it may actually objectively be better later, but I, I got so used to it or liked it so much that 
in a certain incarnation. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. So there's something about this. Um, were you finished making your point? I interrupted you. No, I was done. There's Thank a, you, Sean. There's a. Uh, I always do that. You do. I know I'm an idiot. You're not an idiot. You're kind of like, you, you and I are kind of similar in the sense that I think I'm right in saying this, that both of us, our minds are constantly working, right? And they're moving at a clip, and there's so many thoughts going through our minds at, at any given time. And that makes us want to speak as soon as we have that thought, because for fear of losing that <laughs> thought. So, yeah. you know, I've been known to interrupt as well, Mr. Mr. Aston. I sort of figure if I'm having the thought, wouldn't everybody else want to know what it is? <laughs> 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 right. <laughs> if my brain is going through well, the of trouble of cogitating on it, must, yeah, you know, just by virtue of the fact that it's me, yeah, I think that's the definition of the nature of ego. This as well. Yeah, but there you go. Sean Astin, or Sean Patrick Astin, as he had to be referred to on set, really comes into his own at this point. I love the, um, I love the passage in the book about you know the choices of Samwise and all this kind of stuff. I mean, I think Tolkien was a big fan of the everyman hero, and that's what Sam is. I think when you're reading the book, you assume that Frodo is going to, you know, be the hero and come through, but, you know, by the time it gets to this in the film, Frodo's kind of so taken over by the by the ring that he's a bit helpless, and, it, and it's up to Sam to step up to the plate, which he really does. I love this running up the stairs thing, not because of the little shadow gag where they see a big shadow and then it happens to be just a little hobbit, but... I actually felt like I was taking my place in cinematic history, in a tradition of Errol Flynn going up the steps of the Citadel, kind of something about the production design, running up the stairs and having this fight just felt like it was... It is kind of right classic of a... sort of swashbuckler, isn't it? Yeah. Especially on the staircase. Yeah. yeah. And getting to push those stunt guys off and not wanting to push them so hard that and they missed it. It's their... cool for me to see your character like this as well. Because it's not a part of your character that I knew or I was as familiar with making it because it, most of these moments happen without me. Yeah. So it's great for me to yeah. see it as well. Well, you know, we did those six weeks of sword training with Bob Anderson, the world-class sword master who taught Errol Flynn how to swashbuckle, and he did the awesome. Darth Vader Obi-Wan fight. So to actually get to do a couple of thrusts and parries and, you know. Now, here's an amazing thing. You see the lighting that's on your body? Mm-hmm. I was up in the, uh, the tower. Super, the super sexy lighting? Yeah, the super sexy lighting for Naked Frodo. There's just one other thing that I asked Andrew Lesney. I, I sort of uh, I sort of zinged him with a question that was really kind of a, <laughs> kind of an inappropriate thing for an actor to ask a cinematographer. Exactly. This is a great story. But I, I just listening. said to him, to Andrew Lesney, the cinematographer who won an Oscar, I said, where, where is the light coming from? Because we we're in this tiny little space. And, you know, a lot of times cinematographers... Great cinematography is not having, you know, is having the source of the light kind of in evidence or, or having it be, you know, lighting is just, at this moment, there was light where there would have been no source for it. And he, he looked at me and he just said, same place as the music. I just thought that was so awesome. It's my, my hands down favorite quote of Andrew Lesney. Andrew Lesney. Um, but they, they're, they you actually. You look like you're like 12 years old. Sorry. Kept, no, that's right. They kept jiggering with this scene because it was too. They wanted to really imply that maybe Frodo, maybe Sam did. I never wanted to play it like I ever really wanted the ring. I just didn't want to do that. And they kept pushing it. They wanted me to have a moment of like, oh, no, maybe I want it because I'm, I'm succumbing to it before giving it up. Right. So they, they really are doing a lot of things cinematically. If you toggle between our commentary and what it actually does, you can see. I mean, the scene drastically changed because the way that I was initially playing it, especially here towards the end, was 
you know, in my asking you for the ring, it's my lust for the ring that was asking you for the ring. But here and there's it, almost it, a benevolence to it. But they've changed it yeah. to be that I sense in Sam a, a desire for this, and I'm actually taking the ring back or, or pleading for the ring back to protect you, which I think is interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and it just adds a layer it adds a layer to Sam too that is not so just pure all the time. It's like, well, the ring, you know, if Sam would It is better this way. Absolutely. What's amazing to me is that close up of me looking at you kind of awkwardly was used in a number of different ways as they were evolving the scene and it's it's just amazing that one one look can take on 15 different meanings depending on what's said right before it or right after it. Or but, or simply you know how the the reading of a line in ADR can change the complete direction of my of my character. Yeah. Because we didn't reshoot any of those moments for me, but it was simply a little bit of added dialogue for off camera lines and With a total change of that, tone. Yeah. And, it and then it. it does it. Yeah. It's really amazing. Yeah. Here we are in our orc armor, and how screwed was I with that beak? Now talking about comedy helmets. <laughs> we thought we were in a bad place. <laughs> and then here come the bird people. <laughs> they gave you a choice of helmets, <clears throat> and you grabbed that one, and I just remember thinking, are you insane? <laughs> like, what yeah. are you doing? For, for a good yeah. 20 minutes to a half an hour, you're going to be beat guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good look for Elijah, because his best features are his eyes. Yeah. Covering up everything else actually makes him look sexier. Uh, and so the, the nature of Frodo and Sam's heroism is um, close to what nations have no right to expect but often get from the young men who they order into battle. To defend what is difficult, I suppose, for the soldier to know but uh, Frodo is doing it for the Shire. And the idea of the Shire, you know, of all the places that you meet and all the communities that you meet in Middle-earth, I think it's Hobbit that, that most of us would feel, well, that's where I'd like to retire to. I've sent him to his death. No. Still My main concern with the theatrical release of this film is that I just don't know if there's enough of Aragorn, of our king, of our, of our king and, and the process that, it, that he goes through to become king and ultimately the decisions he has to make and his journey at that final hour to accept his destiny. And I just don't know that that's strong he enough. Was, in the he was so committed to finding layers of poetry and layers of nuance in terms oh of his God. sensitivity to be juxtaposed against his incredible prowess as a swordsman or or his his ruggedness as as strider and and I know that Peter and Fran really honored his passion and his level of commitment to that but somehow just as a function of time when things get cut out of the those the, are the moments the, the that theatrical are go. version those are the things that go and then what's left is is harmed in some way because he, as an actor, he's creating the overall performance with those things in his mind and heart, and he's not making he's he's making choices based on his knowledge of the total thing that's in there. I love all the stuff with the Palantir. And I love the idea of the Palantir, the sort of closed circuit video communication that Sauron has. The direct link to evil. 
But it's his way to sort of peek in on everybody he's going, mm. right? Palantir is a sort of Middle-earth television set, isn't it, really? Um, the problem of all ancient warfare is communication. Where is the enemy? How can I see him? What is he doing? The writer of imaginative fiction can use a device like a palantir uh, that enables the eye to see. The force that has the best information generally has the best chances of victory. And that's one of the great unfair things that the eye has. See, the eye of Sauron sees everything. He knows that Aragorn and Arwen have been kissing. Oh! Oh, that's how it breaks. Amazing how many people wear that necklace now. I see <clears> it everywhere. I see it everywhere. It's a beautiful necklace, and also lots of people wear the one ring round the neck. Yeah. May I say at this point, Billy, what a beautiful helmet. If you lost your sword, you could just run at people like a battering ram. I would do that as well. Skewer a couple. The city has fallen silent. It's such a hard thing to get across that she just suddenly meets someone else and, and then it's all okay. <laughs> but I like the hand holding that's, that's from the book. That always struck me as really simple. That's the other strange thing about that is the fact that if Faramir is such a noble man, surely he'd just be going back out there again, as opposed to trying to crack onto the pretty girl who's, you know, in the ward next to him. Yeah, my enduring memory of that day was the fact that um, being on a film whereby the director could call for as many takes as he did, and Peter, there was we went for a heap of takes. I didn't, I didn't see an orc wearing a helmet like that. No. It's just an out-and-out outrageous helmet that's probably been made by the orc helmet maker, and all the orcs said, I'm not wearing that, it looks silly. Let somebody else wear it. Let's give it the main character in the trilogy. Yeah. It'll look good on him. We shot this thing so many times. We shot this on the actual volcano. Well, that first shot of us sliding down in, into that two-shot was a pickup. We did that in July. On a stage, whereas this stage. shot this right is, here is on is, the volcano. Yeah, this is at Ruapehu, right? Yeah. You know, John Howe does some really evocative pictures, one of them being Samwise stabbing Shelob, which is kind of a famous one. But the one that I like the most is a shot of an orc whipping another orc in this sequence here, and Frodo and Sam being in the middle of of these guys and just trying to keep their head down and not, and not be recognised. By the way, that whipping really hurt. I don't know if you can tell that I'm being whipped there, but it, uh... Did that hurt? Well, yeah, because the, the, there was... The leather only covered a certain portion of it, so every time he'd hit me, he would hit... It would put welts. I mean, big, you know... Not that you could tell, and then have it cut out. This is... What a shot. This was my favourite shot. And I think the end of this shot is actually in the movie. The end of it is, yeah. Yeah. But you don't get the sense that Frodo and Sam are in the But we sat there on that Because what they did is they, they made it seem like, like the armies point were, of view. were moving away, moving away and yeah. that they had moved past us. And oh, here we that, are. Here we are back in there. Not that we were in the mix. But I love that. That sense that Frodo and Sam are... You know, the only way that they can go is in disguise in the mix of exactly where they don't want to be. I was also, you know, with all the toys and ancillary things, like, I really couldn't wait to see the 
action figures of us in orc armor, and I actually think they're the, my fa my favorite action figure I think of the five. They're probably my favorite as well, beak helmet included. Well, in fact, the beak helmet. You know, we made so many jokes about it, but but it really does. It really is a good character. I mean, I actually like the beak helmet, to be honest with you, Sean. It's got a sort of Flash Gordon thing with the way the ears are. It was are. really easy to take off. All I had to do was grab the beak. You know. <laughs> Orc overseer. Oh, I love the orc overseer with his with his nose completely ripped off. Mm. Unbelievable. Those eyes, those poor guys had to wear those contacts. I mean, they they suffered horribly. And a lot of those people are actually New Zealand army, uh, who were hired as extras that mm. that few days. Hit me, Sam. Start fighting. Get off of me. What I find amazing about not only um, Pete's film but Tolkien's work is that you you kind of know what's going to happen. You know that. Frodo has to destroy the ring, that he has to go to Mount Doom, and it's a very simple story. But never at any point do you get bored and think, come on, just get there, we know it's going to happen. There's always... It holds your attention. And, you know, from the first, what, 150 pages of the book, you know what the mission is. And to invest all that time, you know, a 1,000 pages later in the book shows how, how incredibly well-written it is and also the way that it's filmed by Pete just keeps your attention as well. I love that each of these characters that Tolkien has written has a certain amount of ambiguity. They're fully good or fully bad. You know, there's, they're humans, you know? Generally, in these kind of stories, in these sort of fantasy stories, you have archetypes and stereotypes and, you know, your, your kind of typical heroism and your typical victim. And You want to honor those and play against them and make them more complex and deliver what people are hoping for out mm. of it. Like, oh. This is this is what I feel like we miss from the movie is just this little part of the journey, just to get you to where you the need Gorgoroth to be. The Gorgoroth planes here, you know, that little extra bit of heavy, physical, that orc armor physical was heavy. fatigue to get you to where you need to be at the end. You know? Like that. Look there. Look at how far they must have had to go if they had to cross all that. See, that's plane. the that's the Wearing thing. Wearing that you heavy orc armor, and you don't really get that sense. No. And the theatrical. And you're going uphill. You know, you're, you're... it was freezing when we did these scenes. Freezing. Thank God he's got rid of that helmet. Kind of catch his breath. I can't manage to raise him. It's such a way to carry. I believe this is also a comment on how heavy the ring is becoming. Yeah. yeah. Really important moment just in the evolution of those final hours. Yeah, it just final shows how hours. tired we're, we're getting. Yeah. Our, and my how, aim was so good. I was so proud of myself. For look at you, Sean. Yeah, get your kit off, boys. I bet Sean was glad to get rid of that backpack. Had that on for a year and a half. He actually gave it to Sean on his wrap, which was hilarious, because he thought he got rid of it, and Pete gave him back his backpack. Let's carry it back to L.A. Poor guy. Poor Sean. Now, that's beautiful music. Listen to that. Light. Beauty up there. Oh, this is that scene. No Fran played this incredible violin concerto on the stage when she was directing us in this. You know what they chose to put back in there was the stuff we actually did outside, as opposed to that beautiful, interesting scene on the stage where they added in all that poetry. Yeah, I mean, this is I... actually a really interesting point. This is one of the few scenes that we reshot and they actually went back to the original because we did reshoot it on a stage. We were much physically colder that day. With a, with a nighttime, it was shot in the dark as if it was night, whereas that was in the day. And it was a very, very cold. I sort of get why they chose to go back to it because 
it does sort of hit you viscerally a little bit more that we're like out subject to the elements and the cold and not and also as... your performance is a little bit more shaky and tired yeah. than being on the set yeah as opposed a little to bit it, it felt right coming out of those scenes yeah there's a few drops left I always think this when when I see a film where people are gasping for water and then they get it and then they let some fall out I was thinking, that's, what, that's a shame, that. Yeah. Yeah, you wouldn't do that, would you? <laughs> You'd save it. Water is the juice of life. Iskabar. That's uh, Gaelic for the water of life. Is that right? Yes. Fantastic. A lot of this was the New Zealand Army. So, as you've seen there, they can do that for real. Yeah. I remember Carol, who was the first AD, and some of the other assistant directors said that the days with the New Zealand Army as extras were the best days ever because they could just say, could everyone move three feet to the left? And they'd just go, <laughs> and they'd be there. Brilliant. Whereas normally extras be like, what? How, how much? Yeah, what time's lunch? It's still awkward to me, the uh, the topography, the where are, you know, I think in the in the earlier movies, when we leave the Shire and we... You have like, more of a sense of where you actually are. Yeah, and it's hard because just the physical logistics of what piece of the volcano we were shooting on or what piece of that barren Gorgoroth Plains kind of missile range that we were shooting on or... To... I became kind of confused as well, not to mention the fact that if we were ever on set, we were shooting against, you know, a, a very similar rock background every time. So you do start to lose perspective as to where you are in that journey. There we go. This was all done so near Ruapehu. Yes, we were in Ruapehu. Why, I wasn't very clear, because it was very early on in the filming and I didn't know what we were doing. I didn't know whether we were doing film two or three. And I didn't know quite who Gandalf the White was, but I was put through my paces and... Uh, so, rather in awe of the location. Uh, I remember turning up to work that day and we had a briefing by an army sergeant and apparently we were shooting on a munitions range uh, where they did all firing of weapons and stuff and he picks up an array of weapons and he picks up like a, uh, a little bomb and he says if you see one of these don't touch it <laughs> he picks up a fragment of some ghastly looking weapons if you see one of these please call us you know <laughs> picks up a landmine. If you see one of these, don't come near it. You know, it's, it was, uh, he was sort of shooting in the most sort of, there's all these sort of uh, unspent, misfired sort of uh, armaments and um, ordnance lying around. So it was kind of fun. People were finding bullets and... Orlando found a bullet. Yeah. He's very happy about that, wasn't he? I picked up a shell and I polished it up and I had it on the makeup bus. I kept polishing it up and trying to get it, like, all cleaned up and stuff. <laughs> Yeah, it's exactly. Well, if you tell me to tell me not to do something, I'm bound to do it. That was the way. But I think I did ask. I got permission from one of the army guys. Welcome. This is a nice moment that I really miss from the movie, where you actually get a physical representation of the evil of Sauron. It's the Dark Lieutenant, which I absolutely loved. Just because. You don't see Sauron. Sauron doesn't come out, and that was a decision that was, you know, a long time in the making as to how they were going to deal with the ultimate villain. Oh, 
the eye was going to take physical form as the most beautiful being on earth and that was going to be played by like they were talking about doing Kate Winslet or Kate Blanchett maybe but she was obviously she didn't play, play Galadriel but there were some really trippy ideas tossed about because the, the history of Sauron which I was fascinated to learn is that he's a Mayan spirit he's like a fallen angel you know he's almost like Lucifer I actually love that they were toying around with that briefly, that idea of bringing out this beautiful man to kind of entice Aragorn and, you know, manipulate Aragorn in Sauron's true um, physical form. But they ended up um, abandoning that, I think for obvious reasons, mainly because it, it's not in the book A, and not every fan or every person going to see the movie would understand it. I still love this, though. I hate that. Because even though you don't get Sauron, you, so do, get, you do get a sense that there are these physical like minions. Another emissary, another... Yeah. Oh, it just makes oh. me sick to my stomach. Oh, it's great. I was always a bit disappointed that Merry was behind Irma, because he doesn't get to see that much stuff, whereas Pippin is in front of Gandalf. That always got on my nerves a little bit, but maybe it's written. Probably got on a... That would be Pete's main excuse when you weren't happy with something. It's written! Elijah was just, like, so beat at this point, man. It was a new kind of fatigue. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'd never known true fatigue until Lord of the Rings. I think you're sort of famous now, though, for being able to sleep anywhere. Everybody likes to talk about how uncanny it is. My, that... my secret party trick? Yeah, that you, somebody, you can, like, push the button and Elijah, <laughs> he's out. You're like C-3PO. <laughs> just turn him off. Because we were working straight through. Sometimes we were doing, like, 18-hour days. I remember going home and thinking, right, if I get into bed now, I'm going to get five hours sleep before I have to get up. As soon as I walked in the door, I was like, if I get into bed now, I'm going to get five hours sleep. Those were the sort of hours we were doing towards the end. It was crazy. In the last three weeks, it was just, like, constant. I don't know how Pete did it, man. I don't know how he did it. I remember filming all this stuff where they had the, the army. And on the kind of group shots, they would film everyone. So, like, 200 people. And then they move them all along and then film them all again. Oh, is that what happened? Yeah. So we could get, get much bigger group shots. I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. I loved that speech that Pigo did. I remember standing there watching him do that. Actually, all of the army I was looking around, they were all, like, tingling, you know? It's like one of those sort of... Arousing the troop speeches, and, and he really nailed it, I thought. It was a real education watching him do that. And he was very, you know, he was very at one with that horse by the time he was doing that, so it was cool. There was one point in one take, I don't know if it's this one, where he rides, and then he stopped, and the horse did a rear... There it is, yeah, that rear... It was just so cool because it was on the, in, in that moment, because he'd done it so many times, and then the horse did this little rear, and it was just perfect timing. It just happened in the moment. It wasn't choreographed, and the horse wasn't trained to do it. It was just something that had occurred, and I guess it was the adrenaline of, of Vigo on the horse, and, you know, because horses really respond to you when you're on them, so... But it was a cool moment. Do you yeah. remember I had uh, two mates staying with me at that time, Paul and uh, Martin? Yeah. So Martin had been there for about a week, and he kept coming to say it, and you know how films are, they, especially things like this where you've got hundreds of people. It takes a long time to set up a shot, and then you get a shot done, and it might only be 15 seconds. And So he'd 
come to set every day and hang around for a few hours and then go back. And, and then Paul arrived and he was driving him up to set and he was saying, look, don't expect to see anything because, you know, I've been coming here every day and there's nothing happening. And it just happened that day. There was three units all filming different battle scenes at the same time. And Paul said, as Martin came over the ridge of this hill, he looked down and it looked like a war. There was just like a thousand people all battling. And he said, and right in the centre, there was Ian McKellen dressed in white, just taking out all these soldiers. And he's like, <laughs> what? What do you mean nothing's happening? I thought I'd die fighting side by side with an elf. It's the ultimate reconciliation, isn't it? it it isn't, I love you, get Legolas, I love you too, Gimli. Uh, it's not that, it's just, never expected to die next to one of your type. Well, how about standing next to a friend? Mm, yeah. Well, now you put it that way, I think I could do that. Yeah. Oh, boy. I remember this scene so well. This whole last sequence for me, and I think for you as well, Sean, was just so important. Something I both feared and look forward to at the same time. I mean, for me, that last scene where I collapse in your arms and Frodo can't, isn't Frodo anymore, and he can't remember the Shire and, you know, all of the, all that he holds so dear, and he's essentially dying. I mean, it, it is the culmination of, of his journey. It's the, the ring having its full effect on him and, and also your heroism, and it just had to be so right. It's hard to know what, which part of my consciousness to bring to bear on talking about it in the DVD commentary because there's so much, so many complex You know, this was my audition things. scene, right? The scene where I, I'm in your arms and... No. Oh, you've told me one that. Of yeah, them, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very intimate. I remember shooting it. I mean, it was very... Mm. Between you and me and what we were both driving ourselves to accomplish. For me in my life as an actor, this was the most significant dramatic work of my life i mean it, it yeah it was where i it was a sacred moment on that volcano it with, was with i remember the the day so clearly and we had invested enough time kind of enduring the the just the physical labor of shooting the movie that when it came to doing this the release of it all and just seeing peter the tears streaming down peter's face when we were when we were shooting oh. it was such a no kind of emotional vote of confidence to even go deeper. And, yeah. I felt and what a relief, man, that night, after we knew, we knew, you know, there was a sense that we'd accomplished what we set out to accomplish, what was necessary in our minds. And the relief and the elation at, at having done what we felt oh, we had done was just Just amazing. pumping my fist in the air down with the makeup bus, like, yes, yes. And the, I remember, you know, I'd been such a intense mood for so long and people were like wow you're really happy like they were, I was like we nailed it we just nailed this moment you know yeah. such a sad moment and, and man you kill me every time this kills me too this moment where he he turns around and says for Frodo I mean that sense that he is now being challenged by Sauron breaks out of it and decides to charge the army that they have no chance against to give Frodo that extra bit of time is just ripe with emotion. Kills me every time. For Frodo. Oh, God. Vig, so beautiful. I remember doing this. Do you remember this, though? Yeah, this was great fun. 
what Pete wanted was for the Hobbits to, you know, lead into battle with, with Aragorn and then to be taken over by the rest of the army. We were all lined up and it was like a running race at school. It was like, he's going to get there first, you know, let's get there. And the doubles for the Hobbits who were just running their little hearts out and, you know, everyone was so spurred up. Everybody in this film was just, you know, five million percent committed to what we were doing. This picture brings the best out of everybody. There aren't many circumstances in life that do that. My first week in New Zealand was up at Ruapehu shooting this climactic sequence. Beginning of five years of work and you're doing your last scene. And I remember turning up on set in my white lycra outfit, the shaved head, crawling around as Gollum, but then everybody thinking at that point, Gollum's gonna be a CG character, what's this actor doing here? We shot this fight scene so many different times. Well, we shot it once on the actual side of the mountain, and then again on this set, and the <laughs> version in the film is slightly shorter. It doesn't include the dialogue between Gollum and I, which is great, because you lose this great moment where he says, Speak Oh, my God. And I remember the day him freaking me out. I mean, it... Yeah, I remember. You know, that. that's a real interesting thing to comment on as well, is Andy would so put himself into that character for all intents and purposes, Gollum was on set every day. I think in the animation, they'd have to take some of the intensity off for the actual character of Gollum. Because it was, Andy was so intense. frightening. I was, I was very bruised. Yeah, when, he, when we had fights and he would grab, he would grab so hard, you'd have... Even on that day, I remember putting his, you know, my, his hands around my neck to tighten them because I wanted to make it a little bit easier for me to be more realistic in my choking. You see the dirt on his and back And by right doing there? that, it caused me to cut off a little bit of my breath yeah. and strain my face, yeah. which broke all the blood vessels in my face. Yeah, Do you remember that? I remember, that? I remember, yeah. A lot of people ask the question, where does Frodo get his strength from? You he's, asked Peter that. I remember you asked Peter that. He's nearly dead on his feet, and then suddenly he's running up the side of the mountain. I've been asked many times. The logic behind it is that the ring is being threatened once again to be taken away from Frodo. It's that fight with Gollum and that threat again to the ring that gives him that added bit of strength. That battle sequence was done on our knees in principal photography. Yeah. The on-knees thing started off as something that we could do. We could just do little pickups of, you know, a head turn or just tiny little things, and Pete started saying, just on your knees and we can do this. And then it kind of escalated to, do you think you could walk a couple of steps on your knees? And to the point that we did things like that battle scene all on our knees. It's hard enough just kind of try to be on your knees, you know, it's pretty painful. But when you're walking around doing battle scenes and try to remember all your moves, yeah, and it, it became a, a way of doing these things that, you know, it was simple and it was really effective. This, I, I remember when I saw how Andrew Lesney was lighting these and we put the dirt on and I remember seeing your close-up and just thinking, how extraordinary. Like, I didn't get it. I didn't get it when I read the script. I didn't get how this moment was going to be. And, and then when I saw what was with the wind and the smoke and the redness of the, of the lava and it just, I just remember on the day, just like that moment of realization, how powerful it is. Mm. Just try it. I can't, I can't do it. Do it. I can't. Why can't he just let it go? Well, it's taken over him. Do it. I can't. Throw it in. I can't. Why? Because it's taken him over. If that was me, I'd be terrified that I'd fall in, wouldn't you? I'd stand back. Yeah, I would lie down. Yeah. And I remember there were so many different ways that we worked on that particular moment of that decision, you know, that 
that line, the ring is mine, and the different deliveries and the different, the different takes on that. I think I'm ultimately happy with the one that they chose. There are so many different ones that I, different levels in intensity and yeah, and I love that kind of lightning effect on the. Yeah, it's wild. I don't quite know where that's coming from. Maybe the same place the music is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I love it. It's great. This shot it just makes the the atmosphere in there so intense. That's the other thing, you know, about certain moments like that that are so specific is that you you run through, you know, in your mind the ultimate palette. You know, you try it every possible way and. Ultimately, what they choose may not necessarily be the one that you. It's were, not, and you know. it's not just the takes that are chosen. It's how much pacing is on the head of it or on the right, back of it, and then right. how how, it uh, plays how the music the, and, yeah, 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 yeah. and the intercutting with other things. It's it. I like that with time, my ideas of other things sort of fade. My recollections of of the other options fades, and, and yeah, and I'm allowed to finally, with increasing intensity over time, experience it the way audiences experience it. Because I know how powerful and moving it is for audiences, and, and uh, I want to have that in common with them. <laughs> yeah. So the final moments, Gollum on this Middle Earth, was actually technically one of the most challenging parts of it. We had a very large stuntman. I was in my motion capture suit. I galloped on the ground and then leapt up top of this stuntman's back, and he's literally throwing me around. And the biting off of Frodo's finger, Elijah's shot had already been taken, and then we had to match to that, but I was actually... It had a carrot placed in between the stuntman's fingers, so when I actually bent down, and now I'm grabbing hold of that stuntman's wrist, pulling it off, I'm biting a carrot there, pulling it off, and then I tumble off, and I do, in fact, get to have that moment in the book, which is the dance of ecstasy, where he's, he's jumping up and down, screaming, the precious, the precious. This is one of my favourite shots of Gollum in the film. Yes. Oh, yes, that's rare. I finally got to stand up after Peter had made me crawl around for four years. And there we have it. Yes. We kind of initially played it. We tried, We were trying to be ambiguous with it, but I think the, the way that it was originally shot, it kind of felt too much like Frodo had actually made that decision to push him off. Or that it was too accidental. Like, I think there was also a version where Gollum actually just sort of tripped and fell, which was too anticlimactic. So... We shot it again, and I had made a choice, regardless of whether that was apparent on screen or not, I had made a choice that Frodo's reason for stalking Gollum at the edge of the precipice and essentially grabbing for the ring wasn't to get the ring away from Gollum and destroy it or to kill Gollum necessarily, but to get the ring back because he had made that decision to keep the ring. So, But I think it's clear in the movie when you see it what you're saying it's that idea that the ring is destroying itself, like you guys both going for the ring to keep it for yourselves because yes. you want it. and accidentally the ring falls in with Gollum. Yeah, it consumes itself. But falling, we tried it. I did it again on the motion capture stage, built on a rig so I could fall backwards. And we shot it about 20, 25 times. Um, it was very, very hard to encapsulate what is going on in Gollum's mind at, that, at, at those final moments. And, and what it, I think is about is almost a moment of relief. It's a moment of the pain's almost gone. There's, I mean, where does he go from there? Where does the character go from there on in? He's got the object that's been driving him, and in a, in a sense, it's a mo it's it's an, it's a moment of relief before the the agony. He doesn't even really sense the agony of of being burnt to burnt to cinder, no. which again gives gives a power back to the ring. 
I think Frodo, at this very moment, I think Frodo wants to let go. There is a moment that I believe yeah. that Frodo is, is ready to let go. I love L-O-V-E in capital letters, the fact that the ring sits on the top of the molten lava for a while. Still like, trying to save itself. Yeah, the ring itself has its own power and doesn't want to be destroyed. This battle with the cave troll, or troll of sorts, it wasn't a troll at all, but it was actually Sauron. So all this battle sequence was with a some human in Sauron battle gear, and then it was covered over by this cave troll. That shot, I think I did in pickups as well, reacting. That was the last shot. When you knew the tower was going down, we all knew what that meant, you know? And it was, but it was, it was supposed to range from shock or to joy, happiness. And all those shots, I think, certainly mine was filmed in uh, pickup shots on a green screen. And we just tried to think of where we would be at the end of this battle, and then we'd have one shot of being excited that we understand that the ring's been destroyed and then, and then do another shot of also knowing that Frodo and Sam have died. And here's another story that never makes it in because, you know, we're not warriors and right. people don't want to know us being, like, brave. I hear you. Because we're hobbits. But one day I had toothache on set and I thought, well, I'm going to have to go to the dentist. I was dying. And they said, OK, we'll take you at lunchtime. So we went up. I was dressed as a hobbit, so I was all covered up because I was still trying to keep it secret what hobbits look like. Went to the dentist, and they said, oh, you're going to need a, a filling. And he said, actually, you'll need two. And I said, well, I've got, I've got to do some dialogue this afternoon, so can we do it without any anaesthetic? And they said, yeah, but it's going to hurt. I said, well, let's start it, and then we'll see how it goes. And they drilled this filling, and the pain was unbelievable. So much so that I sweated so much that my hobbit feet fell off <laughs> in the dentist chair. <laughs> I swear to you. <laughs> it was that, hilarious. That's pain, man. So <laughs> when I got back when I got back to the set, they had to reapply my hobbit feet. So I could have saved time just by getting the anesthetic and, you know, keeping my hobbit feet on. You're a hero. I was a hero that day. And when I got back in the afternoon, they changed the schedule and I didn't have any dialogue. <laughs> there you have your old pyroclastic lava flow. Not a good thing to be uh, in. Added to which there may be a little bit of sulfur there and not too much oxygen. There was a sense that that wasn't necessarily a heroic act. You know, the idea that the ring doesn't necessarily, isn't destroyed because of Frodo's will, um, that he doesn't actually carry out or finish his task. And I don't see it that way at all. I mean, I think ultimately the reality of the situation is that Frodo is still the hero, but it's his humanity for keeping Gollum alive and keeping him on the journey and not killing Gollum earlier when he had ample you know, opportunity that has made it so that Gollum continues to play his role to be there for that moment. 
to take the ring away from him again to ultimately accidentally lead him his, to his death. So it is Frodo's humanity in keeping Gollum alive to make sure that he's there for that moment to allow that to happen. The light in the party tree. This is a beautiful moment of finally being free of that burden and being able to remember everything again and have a sense of self again, but also a beautiful moment for you as you kind of... We've done our job and now there's nothing left, there's nothing to be done, so Sam can be selfish. Yeah. We can, we can both be selfish and together and... Because Sam is actually finally allowed, you know, to emotionally let go, you know? And you've, and re to... you've resumed your position as the sort of protector of Sam. Yeah. The, the, the leader of Sam, you know? Glad to be with you, Sam Weisgamchi. I also just love that it's back to the friendship, you know. I'm so glad to be with you, Samwise Gamgee, here at the end of all things. I have that has been one of my favorite lines in the entire trilogy. It's such a tender, honest. But also because it rings so true for you and I, mm. you know, and our experience as friends and and as brothers making this film and going through that journey and knowing what it took for us to go through what we went through making these films, you know. I mean, there's so much wrapped up into that moment. So it fades out. So in a sense, the movie could almost end right there. We could have died there. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? And then everything that happens after this, uh, from the fade in beyond, is the, gravy. The, the dream sequence? This is like a David Lynch movie. <laughs> None of this is real. I really didn't know. In, in the books, this, this really bothered me. It's like, if Gandalf could had, just get on the had... damn bird and go get him, why didn't he do it like, you know, two hours ago or... Ten hear, chapters ago. <clears throat> I hear a lot about I hear I hear that a lot about the Army of the Dead too. Well, the Army of the Dead could just sweep through but, Minas but, the, but this is the genius of Peter Jackson because what he's allowing, he and Howard Shore and Tolkien, I mean, they they allow you just cinematically, it's such a beautiful thing that says this isn't about the logic of the story. This is about the emotionality of that sense of completion and the sense of loss or the sense of rebirth or the sense of death or whatever all of those things commingling into this incredible kind of orchestral release, you know? Mm, this was very peaceful. This was a sequence that we always had worries about. Once the jeopardy is gone, and now Frodo has to, you know, see everyone again, how we make this work and it not be kind of cheesy goosebumps. It's a bit of a Wizard of Oz scene. Oh, yeah. You know, the old... There's so and, much Wizard of Oz in this movie, I can't even believe it. I the, watched the, the old, Wizard of Oz. And you were there, and you were yeah, there, and, yeah. you know... But there's... Which I was so worried, and I voiced it on the day. I said, Pete, it's a, it's a little bit Dorothy waking up after being in Oz and, and sort of seeing everybody again. And he's like, no, no, it'll... Trust me, it'll play. And it does. It really does play. I thought this was so funny. Oh, Frodo! You know, where they all... Because look at that. They were so, like, gleeful, excited. You know, it was perfect. I wonder if you can catch any things that we were talking about. I remember we were talking about Treebeard in here and all the kind of things that we'd done that Frodo wouldn't know about. That's right, yeah. Hobbits are such fans of telling stories, they immediately just jump into what they've been doing. Yeah. This is also the laughter scene. I know, you guys actually... Everyone just pissing themselves with laughter. It is really nice. It is such a release. I think that's ultimately what it is. It is such a release after that intense amount it's of darkness. It's angelic. It's beautiful. I mean, it really is beautiful. It is. That glowing, that sort of... It's regal. It's beautiful. Ah, uh, where's Boromir? 
No, he's dead. Yeah, that's a shame, isn't it? Yeah. I'm digitally composited into that moment there. Hey, up. I don't know what that was that I did there, but Pete obviously liked it. I was reenacting getting punched in the face by an Urukai. That's really sweet. That the, that the two have this, this understanding between every, them. Every one of these scenes, these endings that we filmed, it, it, you never knew like which one he was going to use, or is he going to use all of them? And, and so, like, how do you... He used all of them. <laughs> Seven out of 12 ain't bad. I think it's completely necessary. I, I've actually spoken with people who have issue with, why are there so many endings? There's kind of a running joke now with people talking about how many kind of endings there are to the movie, but I don't, you know, I don't really feel that too much. And also, there's a lot of main characters that you have to wrap up the story with, you know, so I think all these supposed endings are all really valid. I love Venice Terrace. How many times? What? Broken record, broken record. Broken sorry, record. sorry. That's all right. Not many people, not many men, can pull off a crown. But Vigo can pull off a crown. Thus. Now come the days of the king. I always thought that Vigo was cleanly shaven for this bit. Did they film it once when he was cleanly shaven? Don't think so. You sure? No. I remember one day in, uh, at the trailers, and he was all cleanly shaven. And we said, what are you filming? And he said, the coronation. Remember? 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 No. Remember? No. Remember? I like the messy Aragon myself. The grubby Aragon, the one who doesn't wash. It does not belong to one man. Given the time in world history when the movies were released, there was real war going on, and so to have him sort of both politically and then in this poetic, artistic way to basically say that fighting's not really where it's at is, I just think what allows the movie to be received by people as an important artistic offering. It's what makes it worthy of its Oscar nominations and the money that it's made and everything else, because ultimately all of it is in service of that point. It's the return of the king. What's he singing about here? This was his Christmas number one when he was uh, 19. It's a slowed-down version of Dirty by Christina Aguilera. That's true. Done in uh, old language speech. The coronation's another really beautiful frock that I just wore for a couple of minutes. That was such a lovely dress, that dress. I would have loved to have kept that. Here comes beautiful. What is he wearing on his head? <laughs> Thranduil was the king of Mirkwood, the king of the Mirkwood elves. Thranduil is my father, and so I wear a crown in this last sequence because I'm, I'm a prince. The crown works on Vigo. <laughs> I don't think we've ever seen Orlando look more girly. He looks great. Yeah, Orlando can pull anything off. I always felt so strange doing stuff with all the other elves. Because <laughs> as Legolas, you know, he's sort of, especially at this point, I used to look around and think, God, so the elves are such a mad race. Legolas sort of becomes this kind of, he becomes so much a part of the fellowship that he sort of loses some of that, some of what you're seeing there as a company of elves. He sort of becomes this kind of warrior elf that has a different presence to him, I think. And so when I was together with all the elves, which, you know, a whole bunch of day players, really, it was just mad being around. And I remember Liv saying, God, we're such a peculiar race. You know, when you look around at us, we're all so tall and slender and long and lean and kind of otherworldly. Oh, all the girls were crying when they shot that scene. 
I had actually just gotten married. So I kind of tried to just think about and remember what that moment for me was like. It's quite personal, but <laughs> we spent a whole day shooting that scene and we really focused on it and everybody felt really good about it. And then like a day or two later, they realized that we'd forgotten about Elrond completely and that somehow he wasn't in the scene. So we had to reshoot that again with Elrond. Um, and that was actually my last day of shooting ever. That little pickup um, was the very last moment that we shot. It was very emotional. The coronation was all shot separately too, everybody. I mean, David and I were there at the same time, but I don't think Carl was there when I was shooting. And Vigo wasn't there, and Ian wasn't there. Liv wasn't there, Hugo wasn't there. I think everybody came in and did their little bit separately. And the Hobbits certainly weren't there. Where were we doing this time? We're, here. we're in a studio in Wellington and we're actually looking at nothing, aren't we? There's no one there. Just us and Pete. And this was the last shot the four hobbits ever did together. Not true. Principal photography. Principal photography, yeah. And once we got it, they brought in a bottle of champagne each. Yeah. And we fired off the corks. I got a Polaroid of that and that's on my refrigerator door Is that to right? this day. And some days I look at it, Dom, and I think, there's three of my good friends and I weep a little tear. And then I just open the door and I make myself some cheese and toast. I love Minas Tirith. Shut it. And the parchment maps, man. As long as he kept cutting to those in the movie, I, to me, it makes the movie. Look at how he photographs it with this sweeping shot, this kind of crane shot over the maps. And you, Because when I got the books, I would open them up and I would study those maps, but it actually feels like you're flying through. It echoes all those helicopter shots, and it, it, it gives it that mythic historical reality. There's the Shire, Bywater, Hobbiton. What if they include that great shot on the, the hilltop? Oh, they don't. There was a great shot of the Hobbits that we did in a pickup, actually, and interesting for all you to, to know that when the initially when they would pull out of the map, they would go to a shot that we did in the pickups of the four Hobbits riding up on top of a hill that overlooked the Shire. And I really love that because it they had the full perspective of their homeland stretching out before them. And it was then that they finally said, you know, without saying it, we're home. This was the last shot ever that the four hobbits did together. I think Pete really liked the idea that, you know, we went out and done all this incredible stuff that we have done, but to the old people in the Shire, they just think, oh, what are young people wearing these days? But we, we don't even need to say anything to each other. We just know. This is one of my favorite scenes as well. The soldiers return from battle in a land that knows not what they've been through and they, they can't, only they know what they've been through and they can't really relate to the, the world around them in the same way anymore. Mm. Forever changed. I mean, it's that classic kind of Vietnam vet or World War II vet coming home. There's so many great bookends in this movie. If you look at the first film and then you look at the end of this last film, the, the echoes and the answers thematically, visually. No, it is wonderful. I love this shot, actually. And there was a lot of talk of doing different things in this shot. I remember for about a week before it, Pete kept coming up and he said, what do you think the idea that one of you bring out an orc helmet and, and no one really cares or, you know, oh, lots of different ideas. And then he settled on this very simple idea, which I think works perfectly. Yeah, we, we understand each other. Yeah, we know what he's up to. That's him off. Who knows what's going to happen here? But, uh, yes, we do. And you got to kiss her. 
I was so glad they put that in there. I watched it with my wife at the premiere, and, and it, was, it was one of the only times where I had a kissing scene in a movie where she wasn't upset by it. It just felt so... It was pure and beautiful. Yeah. And, yeah. Except for when Billy and uh, Vigo were off-camera kissing each other as a motivation for us to look at. Because we heard they were filming this, and we said, let's go in and be the crowd and help them out. So we ran into the set, and, and then when they turned around, it was me and Vigo applauding them, and yay, yay. And then Vigo grabbed me and kissed me hard, yeah. open-mouthed on the lips. I also like this thing that they added. We added this in, in ADR, this voiceover about how do you rebuild your life after having gone through what you've gone through, and that there are these wounds, both physical and wounds, wounds that kind of stretch to your soul that, that may never heal, and this I love that. This scene here, not, not the what you were just talking about, but this next <clears> one coming up, <throat> Pete was going to cut. And I remember being out in the trailer, and I was told that, oh, they're going to cut that scene. I was stunned, and I, I, I raced into the stage and said, oh, Peter, I don't understand. How how can you cut this? This is the... And, 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 like, we're here, like, let's at least shoot it. You don't have to put it in the movie, but we're here at the stage. And what? And, and I remember thinking, like, wait a minute, is he testing me? Like, is he <laughs> is he testing me to see if, if there's anything that I'll, I'll fight for or something? Or by begging him to shoot it, and then we shot it. And then I always got the sense afterwards, like, he would have shot it anyway, but he just wanted me to have that feeling. I <laughs> this, this is kind of interesting. There's a close-up that we added in the pickups just here. This is the last shot that I, um, that I filmed for The Lord of the Rings. And it was so emotionally intense because what Frodo is saying, I mean, it's essentially saying in the subtext that he's not going to come back, that he knows he's leaving, and that there's room for a little more in this book, and he knows why. He's leaving it for Sam, and he's, he knows he's going to leave. And, God, it completely echoed the exact position that I was in, having spent four years of my life in New Zealand with that crew, with this group of actors, with that director as that character, and suddenly it all come to that moment, which was so... It was almost too perfect, you know? I loved reading the voiceover of the of uh, There and Back Again, A Hobbit's Tale, and, and The Lord of the Rings by Frodo Baggins, you know, by Bilbo Baggins, and The Lord of the Rings by Frodo Baggins, because it felt like getting to read it, I felt like that I got to be the narrator for a second. Yeah. And, and it, just to sort of capture the mood of the totality of the story just in a moment for the yeah. audience, that felt... I really like doing it's that. It's a great moment. The elves have accorded you a special honor. A place on the last ship to leave Middle Earth. I remember being in awe of this scene, just thinking how I'm in awe of Ian Holm. <laughs> it's great to do any scene with Ian Holm. I always thought Elijah must have had such a great time being able to do mm. some scenes just with Ian Holm, because he's a master. What little I, I had an opportunity to work with him was always so special. I'm afraid I lost it. I also love that idea that, you know, Bilbo, after all that time away from the ring, asks to see it one last time, and Frodo asked to, to say that he lost it. It's so sweet. See, that's a lie. He didn't lose it. Well... He's lying to an old man. You should never do that. If they ask, you know, is this the number 72 bus going to the supermarket, you should say yes. If it is. Yes, it is. Oh, how much did you all want to kill me when we did this one? This sequence was shot twice. The reason being... Sean Astin was unfortunately not dressed in the right clothes the first time that we shot it. It was amazing because Dom and Bill and Sean put so much into the emotional release of that scene. And it was a long day and it was a, 
an intense place for all of us to go. So we had to cry our eyes out and then come back the next day and do it all again. Because after lunch, he forgot to put his waistcoat on, or vest, as you call it, some places in the world. The Yankee Doodles call it. The Greyhaven set was a, I think it was a fairly low ceiling, but just a very, very, like a big box, huge warehouse. Then there was this wharf set. The set itself, down one end, if you're looking one end, uh, there was sort of a little path and coming down to where the hobbits said goodbye to each other. And then they meant to walk out to the boat, which was, um, probably a platform or something, but it was all blue screen, everything was blue. So we had to completely imagine this world, this water. It was a comical exercise because uh, I don't think Kate Blanchett was there even so, even though uh, she was meant to be, so someone else was playing her. We did film a bit that um, Gandalf says goodbye to Pippin and I, I was kind of sad that that wasn't in it. What does he say? I say, do you have to go, Gandalf? And he says, my time here is over, sort of idea. And he says goodbye. And uh, I was kind of sad at that because they've got a kind of relationship after the third yeah. one, you know. And also, because they've cut that out, it almost looks like he says goodbye to the other hobbits and not me. Maybe he's in the mood. <laughs> and I know that Ian wanted that in as well. I was always a little bit disappointed with the fact that when I cry, my face does weird things. I'm not able to do that kind of sexy crying of your face stays the same, but you have tears rolling down your face. Yeah. I, I have to gurn and my chin has to wobble and snot has to come out of my nose for me to cry. See, I was doing a bit of that. Yeah, so I get quite a bit of hassle on the streets by people saying, hey, you, you went for that, didn't you? <laughs> no half measures. Oh, man. Are you immortal? Are you reborn? Those looks on your faces as you suddenly realise what's about to happen. Just... That look you give is great because it's, it's, it's just an anticipation of it. Like, the audience... If the audience is really into what's going on, you like right there, what? What does he mean? The really significant thing for me that makes me cry so much is that Frodo's leaving, which is sad, but, you know, hopefully the audience know and we know that he's leaving forever. We're never, ever going to see him again because he's going to the Grey Havens. It's not like he's, you know, he's going to go to Utah. I think, I think, is this not the Grey Havens we're in? Right, well, he's on his way to, uh... Is it the Undying Lands? Yeah. He's on his way to Valinor. The Undying Lands. You can't come back from Valinor. Well, there's, there's no return ticket. No. It's like Alcatraz. They're coming back from Alcatraz. Nope. Once again, they cut a couple of little lines out of here um, when we shot the first time. I give him a hug, and then when he when he moves away, I say, you still owe me 30 quid. Which, you know, I'm not sure if it works. Do you have a line? Yeah. What do you say? One of your hairs are in my mouth. <laughs> I could just, when I cuddled him. <laughs> Does this mean I can have your bike? <laughs> <laughs> Who's moving into back end? <laughs> <laughs> You've still not paid the phone bill. None of these lines will work but their lines nonetheless. It was hard to, I mean, it still is hard to watch this scene because it's it's like watching myself say goodbye to my friends. There is so much reality at play in this scene. You know, and the idea of having to say goodbye to you forever or Billy forever or, or, or Dom forever is a, a very difficult thing to get my head around. 
so it's difficult to watch. I love that the movie is almost a, it's a treatise on like how to let go, you know? Oh, particularly this one, and Unafraid. It's the wonderful thing about hobbits. There is something so pure about them, you know? They wear everything on their sleeve. They wear their complete and utter joy on their sleeve as well as their complete sadness, you know? I remember that moment in the beginning of uh, like the, first, the first one when we see the elves and I say, they're sailing across the sea. I don't know why. It makes me sad. Mm. And now here you are getting ready. To, you're going to sail across the sea. Look at my face. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do it without looking like some invisible hands are squishing my face. Everything moves towards my nose. <laughs> but I'm in the moment. That's what matters. Mate, that's, you're right. Too many actors worry about what they look like and not about, you know, <laughs> playing the moment, and you're playing the moment. It makes you a fine actor. Look. For me, it was really about getting back to where Frodo was before all this had happened to him and really showing the complete evolution of, of that character, the complete release, the burden of that ring to purity and innocence once again and, and to try and convey that in a in a look and in a, in a smile. Look at that smile. And that's how we will always remember him. So you seem to be saying with a look, you know. It's going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. You're going to be okay and I'm going to be okay in it's, death or it's life. It's funny because someone did, someone did ask me during one of those Q&As, you know, what were you thinking and what was behind that look? And there seems to be a certain nod and, and what are you saying with that nod? And... When I was asked, I, I couldn't come up with it, and finally it occurred to me, it's, it is that, it's, it's saying, I'm gonna be okay, and, and so are you, and you need to go on, mm -hmm. and everything's, you know, everything's okay. Right, we should probably go, because we're not nope. in it, we're not in it anymore. Well, let's, let's mention something, come on. Really? I've got yeah. an appointment, we should, all right, well, we'll stay then. Right, let's see, where is this? Now, this is beautiful, look. This is in Hamilton, and the little beautiful girl running out here now is Sean Astin's daughter, Ali. Oh, look at her! Two and a half, right, or three? Uh, she was just three there. My little Ali, Alexandra Louise. This has to be my single favorite thing about the entire experience was being able to. Oh God, man! Capture that moment in time with her, with my real daughter, who's now seven. Who's now seven. She did well, and she gave Peter what he wanted. That was beautiful. He didn't ask too much, <laughs> you know? He yeah. said, would you do this, Allie? And she did it. The baby here that Sarah's holding is her baby. So there's a lot of families. So for 10 points, what's uh, Sam's daughter called? Sam's daughter is called Goldilocks. Nice work. And Pippin, if you read the end of the story, gets married to Diamond of Longcleave, and they have a son who they call Faramir and Faramir and Goldilocks get married. And that's the great victory for the normal, that after earth-shattering events, in the end, decency, society, the bond of the family, babies, these are the proper destiny of men. Oh. <laughs> Thanks, Pete. Thanks for putting some of the scenes back in. So that's it, guys. That is the end of the uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. That's the end there. This is it. This, this is it now. This is the end of the commentary of the end of the movie, which is the end of the trilogy, 
which is the end of the Lord of the Rings. Which is the end of your life as you know it. Please don't say that. It's true. Take it back. All right, I didn't mean that. Sorry. Take it back. I take it back. Is that you taking it back? Yeah, I've, I've taken it back. You're forgiven. Thanks. These sketches is just such a stunning tribute. And what a wonderful bookend to the film as well, to end with the conceptual art. It historically links you to what Tolkien was trying to create, and that's always what I've thought of Alan Lee's work as being, as being able to give you some sense of... A bridge, artistically, to that world. How do you get there? And, mm. and Pete has said time and again, you know, what they did to gain inspiration was go to these drawings, so... It's great. It just brings it back to the book. It know? does. It, it puts us into the context of the tradition of Lord of the Rings. I think the world's got me to thank for the uh, credits at the end of the third film. And I said to Peter, can't you revive that tradition of seeing the actors' faces next to their names, particularly with such a long cast list as this? If you're not quite certain of who is who, and the credits tend to go past rather fast, it would be such a help, you know, just to have the face by the name. I was always making good suggestions, not just to Peter, to the world in general, and nobody pays any regard to what I say. Except on this case, it happened, and, and no one could have been more thrilled than I when I suddenly thought, oh, my goodness me, he did think it was a good idea. And then to commission Alan Lee to complete his journey on the film the man who illustrated the books, and set for with John Howe for us what we expected Middle-earth to look like. Don't underestimate that contribution. And, and there we all are, so, yes, uh, with, with our drawings. And, uh, yep, I suggested that. Maybe other people did, too. I'd love mine. I'd love to have a copy of it. Hint, hint. In fact, I'd like them all. It'd be great to have a whole collection. Isn't it? in a book. Put it together in a book. It's a fantastic drawing. I would love a copy. <laughs> That's all I can say. It's beautiful. By this point, I was thinking, oh, it'll be great, because there'll be a lovely sketch of Gollum. And uh, I had no idea that I'd be up there as well. Yes, Precious, of course you're going to be up there, because we love you, really. Well, thank you very much. No, don't do it. You, we couldn't have done it without you. Oh, shut up. I feel privileged when they read Tolkien, and there will be people as they get older who, at the moment, are too young to do this, who will read the books, because they certainly will have seen the films. They will see me as Saruman. They will see Elijah as Frodo. They will see everybody as they are on the screen, because Tolkien doesn't describe precisely how everybody looks. He doesn't describe what Frodo looks like, or Sam, he doesn't describe exactly what Aragorn looks like. I don't think he facially, physically describes any of his characters. Inevitably, people are going to say, well, Gimli, that's John Rhys Davis. The film never ceases to take my breath away when I see it. And all made in Wellington. Wellington, New Zealand. Who the heck would have thought that you could make a picture like this anywhere outside the film, the great film capitals of the world? Uh, well, I guess Wellington, New Zealand is one of the great film capitals of the world. Glad I was part of it. Well, possibly one of the most interesting things was that 
we became a, um, a fellowship of men and women from all over the world who gathered in this corner of New Zealand. We're like the United Nations. We proved that it could be done, and it was done easily. It was so easy to be um, open to each other. So we, we see each other now. We'll be friends for life. There's no question about that. Because we went through the tough times and the, and the happy times. And I guess it has changed my life, the privilege of being involved in it in the first place. I was blessed to have found myself in New Zealand amongst a creative team under the direction and guidance of a genius like Peter Jackson and in the company of some of the most beautiful human beings that I think I'll ever meet and working on material like J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, which was adapted for the screen. I'm not sure when I'm ever going to really believe I did it. I'm almost like, I don't know when it's ever going to really feel real to me. It was a magical time. It's made me a different person, certainly a different actor than I would have been otherwise. But everything after that, having worked on that, I thought that's the bar and I've got to, got to keep the work up there. This is an experience of a lifetime and I just want everything to be as good and I've got to do everything in my power to try and create something that can have the same, you know, everything else has got to try and live up to that. Great, I've enjoyed this, Tom. So we'll never do DVD commentary again. Yeah, maybe for something, but certainly not for Lord of the Rings. But one thing I am glad of is that uh, we didn't have to be naked this time. Yeah. I didn't understand the, the footnotes last time about being naked. They said that, yeah. that clothes can affect the microphones and stuff, but yeah. we're wearing clothes now, it doesn't feel any different. But I don't see why we have to be dressed as farmers' wives. They said that the farmers' wives thing comes in because it allows the volume of your your vocal cords to be at its highest hilt. What, because the petticoat seems to be quite tight around... Yeah, it's like, wearing, it's like wearing a corset. Oh, yeah. I mean, it feels good, don't get me wrong. Can I put these potatoes down now? Yeah, they must be heavy. You should put down those carrots. Yeah, and I'll just take off this hat. Well, that's it. Don't rent it next time, buy it. Go back and buy the other ones as well. You know you should. They'll look good in your collection. Be good to each other. Yeah, be nice. Spread good feelings. Hold someone. It's over. you got to stop speaking now. I can't stop speaking. It's done. I feel as though I'm, I've rallied the troops. If there are people still listening at this point, it means that we have failed. Right. They should have gone. Where are they going to go? They'll go and have a cup of tea or coffee now. Is there a bathroom around here? <laughs> I think that's what everybody says at the end of the film. Where's the toilet? <laughs> Thank you for uh, listening to our... Um, Rambling. Yeah. Or, uh, well, it's been, um, I mean, not to get emotional on you or to reflect, but it has been the single greatest experience of my life, and I think I speak for everyone when I say that. I concur. And that all of you have been with us every step of the way, sharing in our experiences and sharing in what it took to bring this to your home is, uh, is pretty special, and I've certainly never felt that intensely about what a movie has become after it's been released and how it's it's been something that, you know, a whole world has been able to share with us, and I think that's really special. I'm going now, because I'm going to get all emotional. Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs> I wanted to say something like, thank you all. <laughs> all right, all right, calm down. Just, can someone get me tissue? Right, that's it, I'm off.